Torrent Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North and welcome all citizens of the world to Forum Borealis. Today we have yet another program on JFK. However, half the program is lost. As some of you know, we had a lightning strike that short-circuited everything, and in the process we also lost our programs. Fortunately, we had a backup of everything but what was in editing. Included there was part one of a conversation with Dr. Joseph Farrell about JFK. Sadly, that was no doubt our best program with him yet. We will probably be able to top it in the future, but so far this was the peak. I wish it wasn't, but it is so. Fortunately, part two survived, because that was not yet in editing. It is inferior compared to the lost piece, partly because we dealt with all the main points in part one, whereas in part two, we just treat some loose ends. Some of the stuff Joseph accounted for in great detail was the leads to Argentina, the Kennedy-Khrushchev line, CIA documents, Bush and Nixon's role, possible connections to Israel and Mossad, Dulles and CIA, the connection of the UFO phenomenon and the space program, the Permindex Corporation, the Torbit document, Oswald's address book, and also the entire survey of all the exile Nazi connections, that is, the Bormann Reich. Furthermore, I confronted him with a new angle, that yet another motivation for assassinating JFK was his discovery of the survival of Bormann and or Hitler, which would mean the complete downfall of half the deep state, including Dulles and Bormann. Anyway, we sat on this program for half a year, and what we have done now to find some kind of resolution is to release the second part of that show where... We reference some of these points. In addition, we had Dr. Farrell back to do another discussion on JFK. Not as much to try to reconstruct it as that would be impossible, but just to have another go at some of these topics. Although by no means did we cover everything that was lost. Uh, But we did this, and today we present the recent talk as part one of this release, and the surviving bit of the original discussion as part two. Expect that some things are repeated in both these parts you get to hear, so it will not be a perfect flow of development, but at least we now have covered this part of our recent history, and can move on to the next step in the timeline of this series. Finally, to those of you who are new to our our guests, 
A brief introduction. Dr. Farrell is an Oxford-educated former professor, a superb documents researcher, with an incredible ability to perceive new angles and connect seemingly disparate dots. As a prolific author, he produces books like A German Factory and has written several, and also on today's topic in particular, the one called LBJ and the Conspiracy to Kill Kennedy, a coalescence of interests. For more details, check our presentation of him at our website, where you will find his full bibliography or visit his own site called Giza Death Star. So, to conclude... The first part you now will hear is the new talk we had with him, and after the break you will hear the surviving part of the original interview. You know the blitz uh, lightning thing that happened? Yes, and up there that killed the reindeer and everything? Yeah, and it killed uh, our... Killed your systems, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that sucked. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We had three programs in editing when that happened. Oh. Uh, because one of our hard disks got fried and oh, we couldn't wow. salvage it. Yes, but we have a backup. Mm-hmm. But three programs were, was in editing. And unfortunately, you remember our last show, right? Uh, Smashing show on JFK we had. Uh-huh. Uh, and that was in two parts. Part one of that show. Mm-hmm. Completely mm-hmm. gone. Completely gone. Oh wow! Part two survived naturally, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that wasn't in editing because programs for editing was on the hard disk. So um, part two we hadn't started editing yet, but we were editing part one. So one of the things we lost was part one of our JFK. Mm-hmm. Part two we have, but uh, so that's not out yet. But the other program we lost was part two with Peter Levanda oh, wow. on JFK. <laughs> and part one survived with Peter Levanda. So what we're going to do, we're going to put up uh, a show where we tell people what went down. Mm-hmm. So that's how we have to do it, because we can't reconstruct such a talk. It's such an organic talk, you know, so it's impossible to, to salvage it. It's just right. a, a pity. But they can figure out most of it from part two, I think, because in part two we referenced most of what went down in part one. Yeah. So we lost part one of uh, our JFK with you, and we lost part two <laughs> of our JFK with Peter. Right. And what you were talking about, he was talking about, wasn't related. He, he was talking about the wandering bishop and um, right. we were talking about the Nazi angle with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was the JFK, and that was where I said that oh, it seemed to resonate with you because I just learned from uh, one of our guys in a team. Mm-hmm. He made me aware about all the presidents who's been in Hitler's estate, you know, down there. Uh-huh. Yeah, remember? And, and then I launched that hypothesis to you that... Maybe JFK, I mean, there's many reasons, but what if he refused mm-hmm. to play ball with Bowman? Mm-hmm. Because if Carter and uh, Clinton and Obama uh-huh. has been down uh-huh. there, there must be a reason. They may have a meeting, whatever, I don't know. Anyway, that's one of the things that we made a big fuss of uh, in our show. I remember. So, in part one, you elaborated on all the connections between Nazis and um, 
the JFK case. Right. So that's two of the three shows we lost from the the lightning storm breakdown. <clears throat> uh, I, I have to tell you. Speaking of this, Carter, he gave many kudos to you. He Who told, gives credit for what now? Carter Heidrek. He, he gives oh, yeah, yeah. Just for you know having the stuff out there because he had given up. And uh, then uh, you encouraged him to... Someone made him aware of that his books were like $600 and stuff. He, he didn't know this. He yeah. thought uh, they went for $20. No. And he alluded to something happening with him. After he published that book, uh, he had to go into hiding. He, we met in uh, Bastrop, Texas at the conference last year. Oh, okay. And um, he alluded to some things, but I, you know, I tried to encourage him to, to republish the book. And, and I gave him the name of Trying Day, which republished the book. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and told him that he should try them because they, they do risky projects to put it mm. mildly and yeah uh, I'm, go- I'm going to interview several trying day uh, authors now mm-hmm. yeah they're they they have a good product line okay well when i talked to carter something dramatic happened mm-hmm. and this was uh, under the sound check mm-hmm. so we were discussing um, something regarding borman and his successors okay in fact uh, what happened was that uh, I was discussing with him, I was telling him about uh, uh, a lady we're trying to get on who mm-hmm. apparently has a lot of info on Bormann's post-war movements <laughs> and, uh, bec- because we're very interested in, you know, what happened. Yeah. <laughs> Where did it all go, right? Mm-hmm. And so while we were discussing these things, uh, he just disappeared. Oh, wow. And uh, when I got back to him, he said that uh, this is very... Because he's not... He tries not to be, like, too conspiracy. Right. <laughs> he doesn't jump to, to those assumptions a lot. But we were freaked out because a power cut <laughs> that he took his neighborhood precisely at that moment. And he says... Uh, this happens like once every 10 years or something. I don't know. Uh-huh. So so that happened. And um, I thought immediately, okay, maybe maybe the, the Die Spinne went after him. I mean, so I, I don't know what went on there. Could be. But uh, of course I was curious. And that's an interesting timing. Yeah, that got, isn't it though? <laughs> like I say, like I've said many times, if... If it's not our incompetence, our bad luck, uh, you know, blind, uh, dumb uh, coincidence, I'm actually flattered. Yeah. If, <laughs> if, if it's actually intentional. Yeah. So. <laughs> no. <Yeah. laughs> I, I think it's a coincidence. Uh, honestly, I do. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it's, well, as far as coincidences go, there is always the invisible hand, right? But, um, right. oh, you know what? This happened before the lightning. Maybe, <laughs> well, that interview was done before all lightning strikes. And now I'm starting to think. It could be. Because, yeah. listen, I was on Hoagland's show about a month ago, and I forget what we were talking. He asked me a question. Uh, and if I remember correctly, it had something, it had something to do with Obama down in Bariloche. Mm. and he went to commercial break, came back and said, uh, we'll pick it up where we left off. What are your thoughts about 
President Obama and Bariloche. And mm. instantly, Al, I heard a boom in the distance. Wow. And not my power, but my internet phone and cable went dead. Yours, not Richard's. Mine, not Richard's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it took me 20 minutes. This was 20 minutes. This occurred about 20 minutes before the end of his show. I managed to get everything rebooted right at the end of his show. <coughs> so then you couldn't fill in the so blanks. So then I couldn't fill in the blanks. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and it was this specific topic. Yep. Huh. It was. It was. But it's so weird that Obama in 2014, they, they can't have a power base in Bariloche today. What's the point? Unless it's because of family and friends and stuff like that. that uh, Listen, I, I don't know. I, I, I personally tend to think that there's a lot of power base still there. All, all, the, all the indicators point to it. I mean, we've got an Argentinian pope following a German pope. You know, oh, yeah. which I think is just highly weird. <laughs> you know? Very weird. Uh, and he has his own, in addition to Ratzinger, Bergoglio has his own murky background. Uh, and, and you know what? He's cleaning house in Vatican comes to the banking swindle and all well, that. Well, so. let's, whoa, whoa. Do you know who he hired as the auditor for the Vatican Bank? No. Who? The same corporate accounting firm that is the auditor get this Catherine and i researched this about a year and a half ago when she came through out in california and we got talking about this and so we decided we're going to go online and just find out what this company is and i forget the name of it but it's the same company that's the corporate auditor for lloyd's of london (laughs) (laughs) that's trustworthy (laughs) yeah that's trustworthy but now get this and the Bank of International Settlements. Wow. You want another Nazi wow. connection? <laughs> yeah, there it is. So, you know, he says he's cleaning house, yeah. but, but it looks to me like the, you're, hiring, you're hiring the people that created the mess to go and yeah. explain the mess. Yeah, I, w- I was imagining it like, you know, <laughs> Jewish money against German money, but <laughs> um, and that they, he was cleaning <laughs> corruption from from the Jewish faction, but uh, Who knows? not Jewish Zionist. But but no, uh, if um, yeah, I, I forget that he's Argentinian. That's actually a, a interesting clue. <coughs> well, yeah, Cardinal Archbishop of Buenos Aires. Yeah, yeah, and he was he was accused. Uh, you know, he's taking this meek role now. I'm I'm the side of the poor and uh, ah! uh, desperate. But back then, he was accused of putting a blind eye to the. Oh yeah, what happened down? He there. was yeah. He was the cardinal archbishop during the junta. You know, Galtieri and all that crowd. Mm-hmm. So you know, I'm I'm not convinced that he's any great popular common person's pope by any by any stretch of the imagination. I think he's. I uh, there's something dirty. Let's put it that way. There's something dirty about the guy, and again, I find it highly suspicious. He's the one that follows Ratzinger. This whole thing just smells. But I do th- yeah. I, I do think there's some sort of power base still left there. You know, otherwise there would be no point for these people going down there. And the thing about Obama that struck me highly weird, Richard and I were talking about this on his show, 
before he asked that question, you know, everything went down on my end. The public story was that Obama was down there to talk to the new president of Argentina about space matters, and he takes this entire plane load of NASA people with him. And that, yeah, that didn't make much, it didn't get covered very well. It was mentioned once or twice, but he took all these advisors from NASA down there with him. Yeah, but but there's two uh, fishy things here just on that. One, it's about space matters. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Can you spell Nazi UFOs? Yeah, well, that's exactly what I was thinking. Uh, and the second is, why does the king <laughs> go to a subordinate? Bingo. Why doesn't the subordinate come to the king? No, precisely. You know what I mean? Well, that's my point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's something going on down there, and it ain't what we're being told. And, uh, you know... No. But there's one thing that pains me. We lost, uh, which was in part one, and I launched to you a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And your reaction was like, wow, yeah, <laughs> you're onto something. I want us to, to uh, recap that, because uh, mm-hmm. sure. I think it's such an interesting hypothesis. So indulge me, and, and then uh, I want your take on it. All right. Obviously, now I don't have the notes here, so I don't have all the details, but it's what I would call a conspiracy hybrid of Farrellism and Levandology. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll explain. I'll explain. Because something is, something is definitely a a miss. Uh, Because you see, Mm -hmm. and I told you this, we have talked about this, that incredibly many American presidents have been down in Barry Lodge. And yes. it goes back, yeah. I think, in fact, all of them were Democrats except for... Eisenhower. Yeah, Eisenhower. So so the people who went down there that we know was Truman. We know Obama. We know Bill and Hillary. We know yes. Uh, Carter. Yes. I guess they didn't need to send Bush down because he was already in cahoots with them. <laughs> Talk about senior here. <laughs> senior, CIA Bush. Yeah, probably. <laughs> But not Kennedy. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But but isn't Kennedy the only Democrat missing after the war? Yeah. Among yeah um, yeah. So uh, I don't know why why, why didn't well Bush... I, t- I take that back. It may be Johnson too. I don't I don't think Johnson. Can. Oh yeah yeah yeah. But uh, you see Johnson Bush Nixon they they, they don't need to <laughs> yeah. get them down there to get them <laughs> no, over to no. their side right? <laughs> no. Not in, not in Johnson's case. No. No. So they need to have a serious debate with the new uh, puppet and explain to them, you know, what is where, right? Yep. So what I'm thinking here, something is definitely going on because everybody, every Democrat except JFK. Yep. So why wouldn't they invite him down? What if? In fact, I think he was. Uh And I think he didn't want to go down and pay his respect to the shadow government of mm-hmm. who knows um Bowman and what whatever's going on a deal a battle a corporation uh, who knows what they're doing down there but what if JFK because suddenly JFK uh, yeah we're going to go to the moon and I'm going to clean up CIA I'm going to cooperate with Khrushchev we're going to expose the UFOs mm-hmm. 
What if he was on to, and, and he had inside information, his father was connected to, to the Nazis. I mean, they put yes. his hopes on him and he turned on them. Yep. So what if he, of, of all the reasons to kill him, of course, uh, there's a million reasons, but what if he threatened to expose the whole thing? Hey, guys, Hitler is still alive, mm-hmm. or Bormann is still alive, they're running uh, a show down there. Uh, this is what I'm getting at. That's that's my conspiracy hypothesis about this, that JFK may have uh, threatened to expose the hidden Nazi state or what you want to call it. Uh-huh. That's a good reason to kill him too. Yep. I agree. So could he be taken out for not being on board? Oh, yes, absolutely. With that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, let's put it this way. I've, As you know, I've always suspected that there is a Nazi angle to the JFK assassination. And I spent a lot of time in that book outlining very odd connections of people that hover around the JFK assassination to that that group of veterans, let's say, down in in South America, in and around the San Carlos de Bariloche. But I'll tell you, for me, Al, what really may have put the final nail in the coffin as far as their approval of the assassination and possible involvement in it may have been, and that, again, goes to what you've pointed out in Kennedy's, uh, I think it was National Security Action Memorandum number 270 or 71, I forget the exact number, Mm. where he made good on his threat to smash the CIA Mm. into a thousand pieces. And incidentally, since we're talking about this, this will play into Trump. Mm. But Kennedy, in threatening the CIA and smashing it into a thousand pieces and turning over, this is the thing that really... I think was the nail in the coffin as far as the CIA and the Nazis were concerned because he turned over the entire operations desk of the CIA, the covert operations desk to the Pentagon, to the military. He took it out Mm. of the CIA's hands, number one. And number two, he made that directive to the CIA to go through all of their UFO files and pull out any cases that could be shared with the Soviets. Okay, this is this is a document that's there, and of course, in doing both of these things, what Kennedy was also doing was he was taking away the front behind which this group of Nazis was operating. Mm. Because let's remember, Galen at this time now, the Galen Org is by this time rolled into the West German Bundesnachrichtendienst. So that group is still in existence. The CIA maintained cordial relationships to, with Galen. In fact, they even mm. gave Galen a gala dinner in Washington, D.C. when he retired. Mm. So here we are, a bunch of CIA, Washington high society types giving this gala retirement mm. dinner for, for a Nazi. Grand old emeritus. Yeah, for a Nazi general. You know? <laughs> what about NASA? Did they have uh, ties or control over NASA too? NASA was full of Nazis. I, oh, yeah, yeah. I think that definitely there was something going on there because NASA actually was complaining at one point that von Braun and Strugholt and uh, – one of the most infamous of them, Artur Rudolph, 
mm. who was actually the man that designed the Saturn V rocket. It was largely Arturo Rudolph that, that led that design team. So Operation Paperclip was a CIA project? Yeah, it, Operation Paperclip was a U.S. Army intelligence project that was rolled over to to the intelligence uh, community after Truman creates the CIA and the NSA. Right, right. So, in other words, Kennedy, by taking aim at the CIA, is exposing and shattering the front behind which the Nazis have, have existed. Now, you've got to remember in this story also the work of Paul Manning, that book that he wrote, Martin Bormann, Nazi in Exile, all right? Mm, mm. Because at the beginning of that book, Paul Manning, after concluding that, yeah, Bormann was alive and well, uh, after concluding this, he shares the manuscript with Alan Dulles, mm. who, of course, at this time is no longer director of the CIA, but he's still very, very well connected mm. to the CIA and to the power centers in, in Washington, D.C., pardon me, J. Edgar Hoover, and so on. So Manning shared the manuscript with Dulles, and he writes in the preface that Dulles handed it back to him and said, you're on the right track. Mm. So in other words, this whole nest of Nazis down in Latin America, I think was directly in Kennedy's target. Uh, and I think, I think definitely that President Kennedy knew of the existence of this group and that this was his indirect way of removing its influence in the United States. Yeah. So I had a Carter Heydrich on. And yes. During our talk with him, something interesting uh, he told me that Borman and Dulce mm -hmm. uh, became acquaintance very early, already during the war. Yes. Now, we know, uh, you told us in the missing part of the JFK, the, the, the first part, I think, that went into the ether. You told us that the murder weapon from Argentina, remember? Uh, yes. Yeah. So we see, uh, and we also know that uh, in Hunting Hitler, uh, we know that Bormann was alive at least until the, the 60s. Yes. But even if he wasn't alive at that point, his successor certainly was. Sure. I think he died in the early 70s, but, but that's yeah, I do a too. topic for another discussion. And according to Heydrich, Dulles and Bormann recognized each other. Bormann knew that uh, when Plan B, when I need to save my ass here, Dulles is the guy to go to. Right. And Dulles recognized that Bormann is, because remember, before the war was over, Bormann wasn't that known. Uh, he was the spider after all, but Dulles knew he was the man who was controlling Right. Uh, the Third Reich and Hitler. And so the big question is then, when JFK moves to remove Dulles, yes. um, Dulles has already put propped up this huge apparatus, CIA and all, all this, that mm -hmm. he wanted to use and that he apparently couldn't use anymore. Mm -hmm. He goes to his old friend Bormann. Remember, Dulles is the guy who made the deal and mm -hmm. got Bormann out. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, you can take it from there. What do you think? Dulce, Bormann, 60s, well, yes, JFK? I, yeah, I, I, in the LBJ book, I pointed out that there are a number of other clues that connect, that have a definite Nazi connection, and that Bormann is kind of the spider, and his network is kind of the spider lurking in the background here. So let's review what some of those connections are. And for purposes of, of a basic outline, we can put them in the form of the New Orleans-South American connection, 
and we can put them in the form of the Texas, uh, Dallas-based oil men and their connection to it. Because if you look at the work of various researchers, I'm thinking in terms of uh, Dr. Mary's Monkey, that famous book about uh, Dr. Mary Sherman in New Orleans that was working for Dr. Oxner. Yeah, uh, Alton Oxner, a native South Dakotan, by the way. Oh. Yeah, he was, he was from South Dakota, a town not too far from my hometown. I thought he was German. He was German. There's lots of Germans in South oh, Dakota. Right, my, right. Oh, yeah. yeah. My yeah. old organ teacher spoke German until he was five years old. That's right. You know, I, yeah. grew, I grew up around Germans. Um, yeah. Yeah, totally the, um, the interesting thing about the New Orleans connection, and most people think of Lee Harvey Oswald, and I'm not even going there. Mm. I'm going to Dr. Alton Ochsner, who, of course, had at that time was the president of the American Cancer Society. He was, the, he was sort of the poster doctor for the war on cancer at that period. I remember my own physician in South Dakota, in Sioux Falls, had a big picture of Dr. Alton Ochsner in the office there at the doctor's office. So he was very well known in this country at that time. Mm. Uh, probably the most famous physician in this country at that time. Uh, the Ochsner Clinic in New Orleans, Ochsner himself would go to South America on trips to, guess where, Brazil and Argentina, mm -hmm. because he had some very famous patients down there, and he would disappear on these long trips, ostensibly to treat some of his patients, but I also suspect for research purposes. One of his patients was none other than Juan Peron, hmm. and there's a Nazi connection right there. Mm -hmm. So you have these suspicious connections going on in in and around New Orleans via Dr. Oxner, who also was working with the CIA, and this is crucial, working with the CIA to weaponize cancer. Right. Yes. So in other words, when Jack Ruby came down with cancer, you know, you'll recall that he said, well, they're killing me with cancer. And he also said the Nazis are taking over. Yes, and he said and the People thought he was, he was insane. Insane, yes, exactly. So in other words, there's that connection. Now let's go to Dallas. Now you mentioned the murder weapon, and I want to kind of get into the Dallas connection here with the oil men, with the murder weapon. Right. Because there's a, there's a documentary out, if your listeners um, – in this country and Europe don't know about it. It's called Evidence of Revision, all right? You can buy it uh, on DVD. And what Evidence of Revision is, it's nothing but the actual newscasts during the day that President Kennedy was assassinated. Right. Both, the, both the local newscasts and the national newscasts, predominantly from CBS, but from the other American networks, NBC and ABC, in the order that they were reported on the day, and there's a very minimal amount of actual commentary. You just simply watch the newscasts as they happened. It's like and a documentary. It's like a documentary. And for me, it's eerie because, you know, I was a kid sitting at home, sick from school, watching these newscasts. So, you know, it's a right. bit of... Do so you remember many of them? Oh, yes, I remember many of them. You know, I remember those Walter Cronkite... Uh, CBS briefings because, you know, everybody in the country was glued to their television set that day. Right. So anyway, Cronkite and the CBS news reporters get on the air and say, well, they've recovered the weapon, the murder weapon at the scene of the Texas School Book Depository, and we're being told that it is a 7.65 Mauser, <laughs> okay? Right. 
And this happened, you know, for most of the day. And then you see Cronkite reporting, uh, we've been reporting that the murder weapon was a 7.65 German Mauser. Uh, This apparently is incorrect. They have uh, now said that this is a 6.5 Manlicher Karchanto. He mispronounces it, and and it's right there in the documentary, Manlicher Karchanto. And, of course, this is the alleged murder weapon, the Monlicher Carcano Italian carbine from World War II with the misaligned sight. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you look at the deputy sheriff, Roger Craig, uh, in Dallas, a very famous man. He was involved in the JFK assassination research community for several years until he was suicided by shotgun. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> Blowing a hole in his chest with a shotgun. Mm. Deputy Craig, for many years, he was one of the first deputies up into the school book depository, all right? Mm -hmm. They did recover a rifle there, and there was a deputy detective in the Dallas Police Department at that time that came up with Craig into the area. This, This deputy also owned a sporting goods store that sold a lot of firearms, so the guy you know, new firearms simply by the fact that he dealt with them on a day-to-day basis. Mm. And the guy looked at the firearm and said, yeah, this is a 7.65 Mauser. And then you can see Deputy Craig in that documentary saying that, yeah, we saw that this was a 7.65 Mauser, and it even had Mauser stamped on the barrel. <laughs> okay. Not very subtle. Yeah. Now, now, here's the thing. Everybody says... Everybody knows that a Mauser is the World War II German carbine, you know, issued to German soldiers. Mm. But the problem is the Mauser that German soldiers used was a 9mm, a 0.9mm or centimeter carbine. In other words, this was one big, huge rifle, (laughs) okay? Mm -hmm. The Mauser company only issued the 7.65 caliber rifle to... Argentina. Mm. So in other words, when they were reporting the 7.65 Mauser, they're reporting a a weapon that could only have come from Argentina. Hmm. So you stop and think there's yet another connection to Germany. There's yet another connection to Argentina that had to be gotten rid of. So we replace it, of all things, with a weapon from another Axis country, a 6.5 Italian carbine. Mm-hmm. Now, why is all this significant? Because if you look at the Texas oilmen, Cliff Murchison and uh, Hunt in Dallas, most assassination researchers will tell you that they were involved at some level in the Kennedy assassination. And they were displeased with Kennedy because Kennedy wanted to get rid of the oil depletion allowance, which, of course, cut into their bottom line rather mightily. And Oswald moved via George de Morenschild in their circles. There's even a note from Lee Harvey Oswald to Hunt thanking him for the job at the school book depository and talking about some other issues. Okay, so in other words, there's a direct connection between these big Texas oil men, Lee Harvey Oswald and George de Morenschild, who everyone thinks is a CIA agent, but I don't. I think he's a German BND agent. We can get back to that if you want to. But anyway. But those aren't mutually exclusive. No, they're not mutually exclusive, no. In fact, but, I think CIA would be proud to use Bowman's people at vice versa. Well, yes and no, but but there's a detail here that, that you're missing from the book that makes me think that DeMorenchil is not working directly for the CIA. 
Okay, mm-hmm. we can get back to that. Yeah. But but the Texas oil men. This was research uncovered by by Professor Peter Dale Scott in this country. Oh, I know where you're going, Galen. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. They the he uncovered the fact, and this was known at the time that the Texas oil men had some sort of private intelligence network because you know they were able to anticipate and make moves so everybody thought well they have a private intelligence network well peter dale scott uncovered the fact that the network that is providing them their intelligence is galen's bnd in germany so in Mm -hmm. other words there's a direct connection between people involved with the assassination the texas oil men and West German intelligence in the form of the Bundesnachrichtendienst. But Galen also ties Bormann to Dulles. Oh, yes, absolutely. Mm. So yet we have yet another one of these curious uh, CIA, BND, Nazi, Texas oilman connections hovering in the background of the Kennedy assassination. Now, it was Peter Dale Scott that uncovered the fact that it was the German BND that the Texas oilmen were relying on for their intelligence. So then the question becomes, who's their, who's their interface with German intelligence? I think it's George de Morenschild, mm. and here's why. Every American assassination researcher that looks at this character, de Morenschild, uh, from Belarusia, from Moisier in, in Belarusia, um, which, of course, was a huge, during World War II, a huge Nazi uh, Waffen-SS recruitment uh, center for, for Belarusian SS units. So, in other words, de Morenschild is one of these, these German Russians that were brought in to Russia under Catherine the Great. So, he's got these peculiar Russo-German uh, family connections, plus he's nobility, all right? Mm, mm, mm. He actually changes his name from von Morenschild to de Morenschild to kind of downplay it's yeah but but isn't dear i think it's the same as fun it is but mm. he changed it was actually von morenschild okay and he changes his name to kind of to obfuscate that connection yeah he pretended to be from all over the world so oh yeah he pretended mm. to be from all over the world he was a, an actually credentialed degreed oil geologist he had done some spying, apparently. It's still not known exactly what for the Germans during the war. After the war, he had apparently done some spying, quote-unquote, for the CIA against Tito's Yugoslavia. But here's the interesting thing. He's the one that introduces Oswald to, to the white Russian emigre community in Dallas. But prior to this, he is spying, now get this, he's spying on the CIA bases in Guatemala, training the Cubans who are going to go in to the Bay of Pigs. So in other words, if he's a CIA spy, why would he be spying on the CIA? And my answer is mm-hmm. no, he's not directly involved with the CIA. He's really working for the German BND. Mm. And he's probably down there spying on the CIA uh, Cuban training bases in Guatemala for the BND and in conjunction with the Texas oil men mm. that want to get rid of Castro. All right. Mm. So in other words, de Morenschild to me looks much, much more like a German intelligence agent kind of on loan to the CIA mm. rather than being directly with the CIA. Mm. So, you know, let's go back to Oswald for a minute here. Most people don't know, but this was brought out in the evidence in the Warren Commission. And, and it should be pointed out here something that's very interesting about the Warren Commission, because the Warren Commission report 
actually is the basis for most of the evidence that the the JFK, JFK conspiracy researchers go to first. They uncovered a huge amount of evidence. The trick was that they didn't provide an index in those 26 volumes. You literally have to sit down and read all 26 of them. Yeah. So what they were banking on is that people wouldn't do that, number one. And then the report itself, of course, ignores most of the evidence for a conspiracy when they put together the lone bullet, lone nut assassination theory. Mm. All right. Mm. But if you read the Warren report, Oswald was overheard by his Marine buddies at Atsugi Air Base in Japan, where, of course, Oswald was a radar officer following the U-2 flights. So, in other words, he had top secret clearance, and since the U-2 was a CIA operation, he had have some sort of, uh, of connection with the CIA. Oswald's Marine buddies not only heard him talking Russian, but he also knew another foreign language, and guess what it was? It was German. German. It was German. Mm. Now, I find this very, very significant, and most people ignore this. Because you have to go back to what the CIA was at the time and what its human intelligence on the ground inside of Russia consisted of. The CIA itself really didn't have any human on the ground intelligence network inside the Soviet Union. But guess who did? Galen. That Galen. So in other words, when Oswald gets into Russia – is placed in Minsk, which is where? It's in Belorussia. It's the capital of Belorussia. A few miles away, incidentally, from, from uh, Demorenschultz's hometown in, in Moisier. Hmm. If, you, if, you look at Gay, if you look at Oswald in Russia, it's clear to me. And when he gets out of Russia, of course, he's got the daughter of a GRU colonel in tow, which is next to impossible to get out of the Soviet Union at the time. And he's coming back with all sorts of money. Now, who can arrange all this for you? Well, Mm. Galen's network would certainly be able to Mm. because they've got the network in Russia. So in other words, I think even those people who say that Oswald is a CIA operative in Russia. No, he was spying on CIA. He was spying on the CIA and he's, he's actually being run. The, or he thought he was doing it, but they he knew thought it. he was doing yeah. it. Yeah, but mm. I think he, the people actually handling him in Russia are, is not the CIA directly. It's Galen's BND that's handling him. Mm. So in other words, there are, there are German footprints all over the Kennedy assassination that no one really is willing to look at and, and parse the details carefully. This is my biggest problem. With JFK assassination researchers, they will put the framework together, but they don't realize the subtleties of what they're dealing with Mm. in terms of the intelligence politics and relationships at that period of time. So, yeah, you look at the whole constellation of things here with DeMorenschild, with the Texas Oilman, their relationship to the BND, with Alton Oxner going down to, to South America doing God knows what, his connection to the CIA doing cancer weaponization research, Mm. his treatment of people like Juan Perón, you put all this together and what you've got is you've got a great big huge German Nazi presence squatting in the middle of all of this that no one has ever adequately paid any attention to. Yeah, yeah, and there's all those indications. There's the Torbit document, Oswald's address book. Oh, yes. But uh, if we infer from this, I mean, what you've laid out now is the circumstantial evidence, the indiciums. But then we have to look for the motive. And I can only think of two 
possibilities, and they're not even mutually exclusive. One that uh, because Dulles were ousted by JFK, mm-hmm. he contacted his old ally Borman and said, "Hey, we need you in on this assassination." Right, and because that's uh, that's uh, plausible deniability. If he gets outsiders involved, precisely, uh, he he can't trust entirely that stuff won't reach JFK, and and stuff actually reached JFK. It's just that he ignored it. Right. So so that's one possibility. Uh, the Dulles faction fighting for their life in America, right. calling uh, the favor back from right. from the Bowman Brotherhood. The other possibility is that if JFK ousts the Dulles faction, right. he's obviously on to what's going on, and he's obviously on to their allies down in Argentina, uh, because right. uh, we see that, right. uh, we see that uh, right before there was actually an attack, there was a coup against Perón, right. and that's actually a coup against Bormann. So there's already a fight here between the Americans and the Argentinians. And uh, JFK knows that stuff is going on in Bariloche and he doesn't attend like his predecessor did, right? Right, right. So so I'm thinking maybe JFK wanted to expose not just the Dulles faction or or squash them, either squash or expose. Right. Uh, He also wanted to squash the Bormann faction. And then Bormann's doing this not just to help Dulce, but to help himself. Yes. So that's the two scenarios I see is going on on the top right. to explain this involvement. Right. What do you think? Well, I, 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 think, you're, I think you're absolutely correct. I, I do think that JFK was, by going after the CIA and counter, conversely them taking him out in an assassination, I do think that there is a Nazi motivation behind uh, Kennedy's attempt to shut down the CIA uh, because, again, with with the anti-Castro Cubans, you had a pretty uh, right-wing pro-fascist lot there to begin with. You know, yeah. these many of, many of these people were actually old Batista people, mm-hmm. and, and you, can't, you can't imagine a more reprehensible man than, than Fulgencio Batista. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I knew Cubans in Sioux Falls that had lived in Cuba under Batista, and they just came right out and said he was he was uh, he was just very very bad and mm. an evil man. Yeah, there's a reason uh, <laughs> there was a revolution. <laughs> yeah, there 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 was a very good reason there was a revolution. Yeah, exactly. So there's no doubt in my mind that you're correct, but I think I think we have to look in terms of motivation at a much wider picture because the even wider. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Well, I call this the subtitle of the JFK book is LBJ in the, in the conspiracy to kill Kennedy a coalescence of interests because I'm of the view and I took the view in that book that essentially all of the assassination researchers are right in the sense that in pointing the finger at this or that element the the mafia the anti-Castro Cubans uh, the disenfranchised CIA uh, even Wall Street with Kennedy's executive order to circulate $4 billion worth of United States notes and bypass the Federal Reserve entirely. Mm. Kennedy's is is pissing off a lot of special interests here. So right. every, And all of them are elites. And all of them are elites. 
I think all of them are involved. This is where I part company with uh, traditional JFK assassination research in that most other researchers are trying to pin the ultimate blame on just one faction. When in fact, what you have here is a conspiracy in the truest sense in that you have a coalition of people getting together that recognize that they have a common interest in getting rid of this guy. And that includes Wall Street, that includes the CIA, that includes the Texas oil men, that includes the anti-Castro Cubans, it certainly includes the mafia, and so on. And certainly by the nature of the case, it includes this this post this post-war extraterritorial Bormann Reich. Okay? Mm-hmm. So I think they're all involved at some level. And it's interesting because if you take the template of what I do in the book I use the Warren Commission itself to show you that these interests are all interests that are represented in the seven Warren Commission commissioners. Yeah, that's true. You have, you have Huey Long from Louisiana, who is you know, closely associated with the New Orleans Mafia. You have Alan Dulles as commissioner on the Warren Commission, and we know what he's representing. You have John J. McCloy. Believe it or not, as a Warren Commissioner. Well, who's John J. McCloy? Well, he's a partner of Sullivan and Cromwell. He was prior to the to World War II, he was the American counsel for I. G. Farben. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. He was the post-war American High Commissioner for Germany that pardoned a lot of these Nazis so that Conrad Adenauer could put them in his cabinet and we could take yeah. some of them over here into our black project. And into NATO, so, of course, stay behind. And yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Exactly. So in other words, you look at the Warren Commissioners. And you see all of these interests at some point represented on the Warren Commission itself. Mm. So in other words, it looks to me like the cover-up itself is, is the same people controlling the cover-up, you know, uncovering all this evidence that, yeah, there really was a conspiracy, and then publishing this lame 800-page report that, no, it's a lone gunman, a lone nut acting on his own that was able to pull all of this off mm. and strip Kennedy of his security and so on and so forth. So, so LBJ was more of a stooge in this. He wasn't a mastermind, a spider, but more uh, the guy they needed to, to get on board. They needed... If LB, I, I think LBJ may have been involved in some of the planning, but even if he wasn't, let's assume for a moment that he wasn't. Mm-hmm. LBJ certainly was complicit yeah, at the course. point that he that he began to cover things up, and it's very clear by who he appoints to the to the Warren Commission to begin with. He what he's trying to do is at that time under American law, there was no investigative authority for the federal government to investigate a crime like that. It was the state of Texas that had jurisdiction over any investigation. So what he's trying to do is head off a a state of Texas investigation and a potential congressional investigation that he cannot control and control the narrative of what happened. All right. Mm -hmm. So he is complicit in the cover-up, and that makes him accessory to murder. It's very clear that at this point that he is involved up to his earlobes in it. And he later in life even admitted in front of Walter Cronkite. Yeah, yeah, but isn't it interesting, uh, Joseph, that he seems to get a bad conscience. Uh, he starts yeah. drinking. He starts blapping his mouth and then he dies. Yes, yes, yes precisely. I think, I think LBJ is another dead Kennedy witness. But now let me – 
Let me expand this for a bit since we talked about Trump in this connection earlier. Because I think Oliver Stone, uh, the American uh, movie director that made that very famous movie, JFK, back in the 1990s, Mm. uh, he comes right out in the movie and suggests that this was a coup d'etat. All right. Mm-hmm. And there's no doubt in my mind. In fact, in the in the LBJ book, I actually have a whole chapter uh, organized around the uh, around the the book of Edward Lutvok, an American think tank guy who wrote a book called Coup d'etat. In other words, it's a how to manual. How do you pull off a coup d'etat? Mm-hmm. And I simply took that book as a template to examine what happens on the day that President Kennedy is assassinated. Well, one of the surest signs that it is a coup d'etat, in fact, there's two, is that most of Kennedy's cabinet is on the way back from some sort of security conference in the Pacific. Most of his cabinet is actually on an airplane. Yeah. So in other words, the cabinet is out of Washington, D.C., and when the news comes through that the president has been assassinated, they they open up the the vault to try and establish secure secure communications between the aircraft and Washington. And guess what? Everything's missing. What do you mean everything's missing? They cannot establish communications. They're cut off. Hmm. There's no secure link for them to activate on the aircraft. Is is Kennedy's brother on board there? No. Kennedy Robert Kennedy is the only one of the cabinet that is in Washington. All right. Uh, and LBJ, of course. Uh, no, LBJ is with Kennedy in Dallas. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, LBJ and uh, Bobby is not on that plane. You said he was the only one, but LBJ is yeah, not Bobby, on the plane. Bobby is in Washington. LBJ is in Dallas. All right. Yeah. In Washington D.C. itself, at the moment of the assassination, the city's phone lines go down. This is not a well-known fact, but the city's huh. phone lines go down for about an hour. No one can talk to anyone. That's a coup d'etat. Yeah, absolutely. Now, let's look at what has happened now. Let's take all of this together and view things long range. What happened with JFK was you had basically the neocon neoliberal coup d'etat that has had to maintain and sustain that narrative for the past 60 to 70 years. All right? Mm. You put into place the network, the nexus, that persists right up through the Obama administration. Mm. You've put those people into power. There was a hiccup, two hiccups actually, with Nixon and his refusal to go along with GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades, and what happens after that, Watergate and Nixon is out. Then you had Carter eventually come in. Ford was his... Uh, appointed replacement, and who does Ford pick for his vice president? Nelson Rockefeller. Okay. Mm. Then you had Carter. And Ford, who was involved in the cover up, wasn't he? And Ford was involved as a Warren commissioner. Yes, precisely. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then you had Carter. What does Carter bring in? He brings in a lot of trilateral commission people, including Zbigniew Brzezinski. All right. Ah, Carter is the one who brought him in. Ah. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The whole the whole human rights Carter foreign policy agenda that was Bigniew Brzezinski. Yeah. Human rights were used as a pretext for America to meddle in other countries. This is where it starts. Yeah. Right. So then we have the next hiccup, which is Ronald Reagan. Hmm. And Reagan was a real problem. He was kind of the first Trump. Why? 
because he was not beholden to any of these people, number one. Which is why they put Bush uh, as his chain. Precisely. Yes, precisely. Mm. Because Bush, according to the stories that have come out now, according to the arrangement, that the compromise that was struck with Reagan, was Bush would handle all the national security stuff. Mm. And of course, Reagan then brings in Bill Casey as CIA director. Well, who's Bill Casey? Well, Bill Casey was a close personal friend with, guess who? Senator Prescott Bush, mm. Bush's father. Wow. So in other words, the attempt to undo the coup d'etat that may have been possible under Reagan was derailed. Mm. So the bottom line here, getting back to the JFK context, mm -hmm. the bottom line here is that Trump is coming into office in a much, much stronger position than JFK did, even in terms of electoral politics, because JFK won the office in a very, very tight election against Richard Nixon. And now we know, again, that JFK won because of voting fraud in Chicago. Voter fraud, I know. <laughs> so, <laughs> I know. But I actually, I actually support, in that instance, I think that was a good thing. It was probably a good thing, yeah. But, um, <laughs> Not that I support fraud, but, uh, well, it happened. And, it was either uh, him yeah. or Nixon, you know. Yeah. We, we know what he turned out to be. So, yeah. <laughs> so it was probably a good thing. Yeah. It's interesting uh, what you mentioned here because um, you see a tendency and that is that if a president has a weak vice president or a dimwit, right. that's like an insurance policy against being right. killed. You, you saw Bush Sr. He's very clever. Oh, yeah. He had, uh, what was his face? Dan Quayle. <laughs> Dan Quayle. Yeah. Of course, nobody could kill him, because he, but he's paranoid. Even though he's on top of the pack, he kills all the people, so he thinks, shit, I can be killed. Yeah. And so... Put in that guy. And you see that if a dimwit is a president, he usually has uh, evil genius in his back, like uh, Bush had. Uh, yeah. And, and I think JFK's problem was that he had an evil genius instead of a, a dimwit. He had uh, the guy who was involved. Right. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. It's a whole deep state shit. That's the problem. Yes, exactly. That's the problem. Mm. And people saw that. Now, I mentioned Trump because if you look at what American sources are now beginning to say, Trump has been very a very interesting man to watch. He has absolutely made it clear that he t intends to trim the wings of the CIA because you'll notice that the people he's appointing – are largely people from other intelligence agencies or the Pentagon, all right? Mm. And this means, I think, that he too is is recognizing that this is a nest of Vipers. bad influence on, and on American uh, domestic and foreign policy. And it's very interesting, Al, that there was a story that appeared on the Sakers website recently that was picked up by some other internet sources in which it is speculated that Russian GRU Spetsnaz agents are operating in this country to protect Trump. Hmm. And Trump has also done something else very peculiar. He has retained and does to this day retain his private security services for his protection. This tells me that Trump realizes 
that there is a group within the American national security establishment that would like nothing more than to see him go the way of JFK. Mm. Yeah, if he's going to take on CIA, yeah. he's a dead man. Yeah, yeah. He he has his own protection unit. Not Secret Service. Not Secret Service. No, during the campaign, he had a bunch of ex-military also running security for him. So this tells me that he is deadly serious about going in there and cleaning up. And the Russian GRU Spetsnaz story kind of came along out of the clear blue. And I give it a little credence simply for the fact that we know that Mr. Putin definitely preferred to have Trump rather than, than Darth Hillary oh, yeah. in, in the White House. Uh, we've seen Trump appoint Rex Hill, uh, Tillerson to the Secretary of State. Uh, Tillerson is an interesting figure because he is friendly with Putin. Uh, he is an Exxon. Yeah, but, but he, but he's, he's Exxon Mobile, right? Yeah, and I think what this portends is you've got a businessman in there that's friendly with Russia that I think is is going to be able to to open up the possibility of some trade between the two countries again. And Tillerson is also a religious man, as is Putin. So in other words, they're kind of talking the same language there. Mm. So I think Trump, this GRU Spetsnaz story may in fact be true that even without Trump knowing it, he may be having people running security interference for him uh, from a distance. What I'm suggesting here, in other words, is that Trump is coming into office in a much stronger position than did John F. Kennedy. Uh, mm -hmm. John F. Kennedy was more or less isolated in the White House, and his his personal network of power basically was his family, was his brothers and his father. Uh, Trump is in a very different position. He's coming into the White House with support of elements of the American deep state that are opposed to the neocon track that this country has been on for the last yeah, ne neoliberal and neocon right neoliberal neocon track, and and you know that been on for thirty years and we've seen the results. So he is getting support from the deep state. He has his own security team. He had military security running interference for him in addition to the Secret Service. Uh, so he's coming into office, I think, in terms of his potential enemies within the American deep state in a much stronger position. There was an insider just uh, leaking that there's a war in the intelligence community. Is, is that then the CIA against the rest? I think it's a certain segment of the CIA, but certainly the CIA would be the one agency I would say is most aligned with the neocon, neoliberal mm. faction that's been driving the country. The other intelligence services, the DIA, the NSA, uh, National Reconnaissance Office, the Pentagon. I, I don't trust NSA one second. No, I don't trust them either. You know, I don't trust any of them either. But what I'm saying is, is that if you're looking for the support of the American deep state that is behind Trump, I would look to those agencies mm. rather than the CIA for the simple reason that those agencies are not nearly as involved in the covert operations part of, of the intelligence game as is the CIA. And I think this is the reason why you see Trump appointing people like uh, General Mattis and so on and yeah, so forth. Yeah. Uh, to the positions that that they will have in the Trump administration, I'm I'm imagining that maybe if if you're high up in the NSA and you're collecting everything, yep. 
Maybe some people with conscience realize what's going on because they can see and hear everything, right? Like, well, yeah, like Snowden, Snowden did that. He actually, oh my God, we are, we are surveilling everyone. I better jump off and, and tell people. Well, you, so maybe some people did this, but not like Snowden uh, because they don't want to risk, you see, what happened to him. Well, but instead, they start talking together and now they have someone to back, like Trump. Could that? Well, yes, precisely. This is, this is precisely what I want to get to. You've raised a very good point, and this is why I think Trump is in a very different position vis-a-vis the opposing elements of the American deep state than was John F. Kennedy. Mm. And this is the fact. As you say, the NSA is spying on everybody. And again, an interesting contrast to Kennedy here. As the election went on, and as the after-election events went on, people are seeing him making (coughs) selections and choices that are encouraging from the standpoint that he's not putting into place, in many cases, there are some exceptions, but in in most cases, he's not putting into place the deep state. This is the real problem here. Trump is coming into office in a much stronger position, both in terms of his alliances within certain factions of the American deep state that are not on board with the unipolar American Mm. Uh, imperial agenda that are not on board with the neocon, neoliberal agenda, and so on, and certainly not on board with the global loaning agenda of of offshoring all of America's industry. Mm. So, you know, this is he's in a much, much stronger position, I think, vis-a-vis the elements of the deep state that are opposed to him yeah. than, than was JFK, absolutely. Mm. But he took this uh, Christian fundamentalist guy and puts him in. And I think that's very clever because I don't think people want – what's his name again? Um, Mike Pence. Yeah. He's probably a nice guy and everything. But, uh, you know, as a president, come on. Well, yeah, exactly. He he picks somebody very cleverly there because Pence does have those those religious backgrounds. That's – like you say, that's kind of an insurance policy. But – uh, he he's also a a good politician. He knows he knows the political game, and has deep connections in Washington D.C. And he's very popular in Indiana. So he was a very astute uh, choice for that reason too. So it's a bit of both in this case. You've got some not necessarily an evil genius, but certainly someone that's politically competent and and knows the game. And by the same token, as you point out, he has these religious leanings that are not going to be too – people are not going to be inclined to bump off Trump and put him into the White House. So Trump was very, very careful in in that selection, I think. That was, as far as I'm concerned, a a brilliant political move on on Trump's part. Mm. But – I was actually positively surprised that he dumped Giuliani and Christie because I can't stand any of them. Christie is just a corrupt moron. But Giuliani, he's an insider. He was involved. He's one of the suspects of 9-11. He's involved somehow. I'm not saying he pulled a trigger, but he knew about this. He cleaned up. He was involved in a cover-up. That's my point. So when he was on board, sorry, I'm just saying, when he was on board with Trump, I was disheartened because such an insider establishment, dangerous guy, and then he dumped him like that after he won. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably true. And, and in Giuliani's case, like you, I was I was dismayed yeah. when I saw Christie and, and Giuliani. But uh, I didn't say much about it because I 
again, my whole approach to Trump has been that he is a deep state candidate. He's a candidate of factions in this country that have basically been disenfranchised for the last 30 years. Mm. So in other words, I kind of sat back and waited because I thought that there's a shoe that's going to fall here. Mm. And depending on where the shoe falls, that's where the Trump administration is going to go. When he distanced himself from Giuliani, that told me that he's serious about getting in there and cleaning house. Mm. Uh, and I, again, I, people have to understand he's not going to be able to do this overnight. But I think the nature of the election that we've just seen and how it's spilling over into Europe and to a certain extent was a spillover from Europe. And this is an aspect that's not being discussed adequately, in my opinion, because Americans, particularly those that were supporting Trump, were watching Europe and watching what has been happening over there with these policies that Angela Merkel has forced on the rest of the EU, hmm. and and watching it with dismay, and then of course, which the, is a good thing because the which backlash, is a good thing, yes, you know, because the backlash was Brexit. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, I think it's a good thing. One thing that gave me hope about Trump is that uh, Roger Stone has his ear. That means yes. that he knows about at least uh, the JFK conspiracy. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, a few other things. Yeah, well, Trump, again, by dropping Giuliani, let's go back to the primary season when you had all of these Republican, basically non-entities, running. And Trump just dropped right in the middle of one of those primary debates statements to the effect that 9-11 was an inside yeah. job and, and your family was involved and Jeb Bush was just left on stage <laughs> flapping his gums, looking thoroughly disconcerted, and a few days later he drops out of the race. Yeah. So this that was deliberate. This was not Trump shooting from the hip. This was Trump dropping a message right into the mm. middle of a presidential debate that careful. you people, yeah, yeah, be careful because I know things and mm. you know I know things and I've got connections. Yeah, because I I'll give Trump this. He's flirted with a lot of establishment oh, Republicans. Yeah, yeah. Sure. And and the way he outmaneuvered Romney was, oh, was beautiful. <laughs> I mean, he humiliated the fool. Yeah. And yes, he will get rid of Obamacare because that's really a Romney care, as yeah, you well yeah. know. It's a payback, kickback to the insurance corporation. So, yeah, yeah. so I was thinking, okay, now he's going to put Romney on board. He's going to put uh, this guy on board, that guy. But he, he used all these old-timer Republicans. Oh, yeah. He played them for fools. Yeah, he, he called them all in for conferences, you know, made it look like he was interested in working and then makes his appointments anyway. <laughs> and, and made them support him yeah. so they can't go back yeah. on it uh, unless <laughs> yeah. they themselves look like bitter, sour fools. Yes, exactly. It was, it was such – and again, this brings me back to the fact that whoever's advising Trump, and I suspect, again, it's – People like Pachenik and, and people from the intelligence services. No, but no, no, hang on. On these things here, this is his game. This is a reality show. He knows yeah. these things. Yeah, this is how he plays his poker. I, I don't think he needs advisors how to No, he, he's got the instincts already. Yeah. But, but again, I think to put the icing on the cake that, yeah, they're telling him, yeah, go ahead and do this. You know, get them, put them if on. If anything, I think they're telling him what these people are representing yeah, because he may not know all that. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Put the spotlight on these yeah, people, okay. which is what he's done, and then dismiss them. And now he's got them on record. Mm. 
you know, and he's he's just devious and Byzantine, <laughs> Byzantine enough to, to use all of this. <laughs> and what kind of amazes me again is that this is the first president elect that I've ever seen that I could remember all the way back to Kennedy. Mm. Trump has created the climate now where all of these stories that we certainly knew were true from from the so-called alternative media for, for a number of years. He's brought this, I, I'm just kind of shocked that he's been able to inject these things yeah, now yeah. into the mainstream conversation, yeah. and they hate it yeah, because yeah. now they have to deal with it. You know, he did that with Jeb Bush with the 9-11 thing. Then he turned right around and did the JFK number on Senator Cruz, who quickly dropped out of the race, let it be noted, <laughs> yeah. after, after he dropped that little bombshell. Yeah. So what I'm suspecting here, again, is that the faction of the deep state behind Trump is going to the media and saying, look, you either put these stories out there and start covering them, or we're going to use our control files on you guys. Mm. So Trump is saying what people have been thinking and afraid to say for many years. He, he's saying it right out in the open. He has nothing to lose, for one thing. But the mm. other thing, I think that you have to look at Trump. And I began to suspect this very early on during the Republican primaries and how he absolutely torpedoed Jeb Bush and, and Senator Cruz with those offhand comments. They weren't offhand. I think he was very carefully coached in how to use the social media, uh, how to run a campaign on a, on a financial shoestring while Hillary's raising billions and accomplishing nothing. Mm. This, this was a paradigm changer. Yeah. And the point is that Pizzagate, the Anthony Weiner stuff, and, and the NSA surveillance, what this means is that those control files that Catherine Fitz speaks about so much for keeping people in line with the neocon agenda have now been turned against them. In other words, Trump, I think, has some secret leverage here over a lot of people mm. and that this is the reason that you see such panic going on mm. now you need to look at pachinik and what he said about the election and this counter coup faction within the american deep state backing trump he comes right out and says it that this is something that was planned for a very very long time oh. and that they had initially tapped trump back in uh 2008 and Trump didn't want to do it. And finally, they talked him into it. So in other words, this whole counter-coup meme has been there, out there in public, in the American alternative media for quite some time with respect to Donald Trump. Hmm. What I'm suggesting to you, Al, is that you're looking at a whole movement of history within American politics from JFK to Donald Trump. And that what you're looking at with Trump is finally the pushback from the very same deep state that got rid of Kennedy that realizes that the, pol the policies and course that they've been on are leading to ruin. Mm. And we've got to change direction and we've got to do it quickly. So in other words, you have to look at the whole JFK-Trump period as one big, deep, covert movement within American history that they are deeply deeply connected. Mm. Good. Oh, I hope you're right. Well, I hope I'm right, too. Again, time will tell <laughs> yeah. if that hypothesis is true. But thus far, it certainly looks to be the case. With, with It the, fits very well. It fits very well, and it fits very well with the, with the little messages that you see Trump sending. And interestingly enough, Pachenik even points out that he was at a DARPA conference in the 70s that was already predicting the rise of the social media and how it could be used 
in psychological operations of this nature. Good, that backfired. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, he comes right out and says, this is what we were predicting, and this is how we finally used it. Oh, you mean it could be used for uh, subversive? Yeah, that it was used precisely against these people that, that staged the original coup. Oh. He's, he's suggesting that this whole movement it was a long-term counter plan, as it were, that's been around for a long, long time, and they finally just pulled the trigger on it. Hmm. So if you go out there and do some research, dig into the Steve Pachinik guy, watch his appearances on YouTube or on Alex Jones or whatever, watch them in chronological order, and your jaw will just be on the floor because he's essentially, and I didn't know about this guy quite honestly, Al, until one of my website members brought him to my attention after the election had occurred. Mm. You know, I was I was saying up until... I haven't seen the interviews or read about it, but I heard the headlines that he said it's a war in the intelligence community. And I was thinking back then, Yes, I hope it's true. It could be more disinformation from the intelligence services, but it can also be true because it seems like something's going on behind the scene. Yeah. But I have to be the devil's lawyer here. Mm -hmm. So... I'm saying, do we know that these counter-coup people are better? I mean, what's their agenda? I don't trust intelligence people. And oh, I don't either. I'd be hard-pressed to see them as freedom fighters, but you never know. There could be a bunch of people with conscience, but why aren't they rooted out and squashed a long time ago? Who are they representing? Uh, is it a change for the better? We have to take that into consideration too, even though at this point I'd, I'd incline to say any change is good. Because they are sinking uh, the ship here, uh, the powers yeah. that be. So any change is good. But yeah. what do you think about it? Well, you have to listen to him very carefully. But I think to a certain extent, what they were waiting for was the right, the right combination of several factors, mm -hmm. inclusive of uh, cultural phenomena, which we certainly have seen uh, Western culture degraded under, under Mr. Global's mm. plans, especially in the last eight to ten years. Yeah. Uh, they were waiting for the right cultural circumstances. They were waiting for the right socioeconomic circumstances mm -hmm. in that so long as you had a European and American middle class that was relatively stable and secure in their financial position – the, the conditions to challenge the coup plotters weren't really there because they did take care for a number of years to keep that middle class secure. Well-fed and dumbed down. Right, well-fed and dumbed down. They didn't really start going after them in a major way until after 9-11. And that's when the, the socioeconomic circumstances began to change. Yep. Then the third thing I think they, they needed – and this is why the timing with Reagan was off, because certainly there were economic difficulties under Carter with, with the massive inflation that we were experiencing in this country under Carter. But by the same token, it wasn't severe enough to, to create the socio-cultural conditions for Reagan to convert his, his landslide victories into victories in Congress that could push through his agenda. Yeah. Plus, they tried to kill Reagan. Yeah, and, they, uh, they also tried to kill him, too. And he was brought into office by a CIA operation against Carter. Yes, you know, in the yes. Iran thing. The Iran. By Bush, I mean. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, so Reagan kind of backed off many of his agendas after that uh, assassination attempt. It's very interesting to see how that worked out. So they needed the right candidate to go in and, and, and have ideas of his own that was not going to be beholden to these people. And bold enough. And bold enough to do Trump it. Trump doesn't give a damn. 
Yeah, he doesn't. He really doesn't. So, you know, the conditions were right, I think, in this particular election cycle for the Trump phenomenon to occur. But it seems that the president has a lot of power. Oh, yeah. But on the other hand, there is the more conspiracy maybe uh, approach. And that's like, okay, uh, so you the new president, you just won. Okay, come here. Uh, we'll tell you how the game is played. This is the shadow government. These are your kids. Uh, this is the agenda. Now you be a good boy and play along. So how much power do the president have after all? Oh, they have an enormous amount of power and most of it, in my opinion, unconstitutional. Yeah, on the surface of it. But there's no shadow government going on here? Oh, yeah. Oh, I absolutely think there's a shadow government going on here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's been a shadow government in, in American politics going all the way back to, to the current constitutional system. And that's that has consisted in the form of private central banks. The first president mm. to successfully challenge all of that was, of course, Andrew Jackson, when he just flatly refused to recharter the, the second bank of the United States. There's a good reason Andrew Jackson is being taken off the $20 bill, and it has nothing to do with recognizing this minority or that minority or women or anything else. That's the cover story. And Andrew Jackson, admittedly, was a very unpleasant man. I mean, look what he did to the Indians. But the real reason is Andrew Jackson was adamantly opposed to the idea of a private monopoly having control over the nation's currency. That that was the bottom line. And he, mm. he was successful in getting rid of it. And we didn't really see the return of it until after the American Civil War. And even then, it took several decades until 1913 when they put in the Federal Reserve. They made little steps in that direction with the Currency Act um, – after the Civil War and so on. But even then, they, they didn't dare come right out and, and institute the thing. You know, that was kind of in the middle of the night, uh, wonderful Woodrow Wilson deal that he gave us with the IRS. Um, yeah, yeah. And he regret that. Oh, yeah. Wilson is too little, too late, if you ask me. But Too little, too yeah. late. Hmm. So the, the deep state has always been there. But in terms of, of presidential authority, I look at a lot of these executive actions that could be, if Congress had a mind to, could be repealed by the Congress. But um, I think what you're looking at, at least for the moment with Trump, is he's going to repeal. I, I look for a flurry of executive orders to occur, repealing mm -hmm. some of Obama's. Uh, but the whole issue of, of executive orders has to be looked at, I think, and examined over the long term because we've seen presidents from uh, all the way back to, to Franklin Roosevelt all the way on through. Every president has, has abused that privilege uh, in unconstitutional ways, I think. Our problem is, very bluntly, we've got to start observing the Constitution. Mm. Just financially, if we started observing the Constitution just financially, a lot of our budgetary problems would, would dissolve. Uh, the budgetary provisions haven't been followed for so long. It's, and, and now what we have, we have a mess of corruption. Mm. If they were just observed, that would be a huge step right there. The other thing, Kennedy was on the right track when he started issuing executive orders about United States notes in a certain sense. You know, I think he, again, is overstepping his constitutional prerogative, but he had the right idea that there's no need for a monetized debt system at all. Yeah. And that was, that was the original problem that led to the first constitutional convention in the first place. Because what did Hamilton do? He monetized the debt from the Revolutionary War. Okay. 
Had had things been left alone, you know, I'm kind of of the libertarian school here, the Articles of Confederation would have sorted themselves out simply by the pressure of market. Mm. The states would not have been able to conduct trade with their tariffs in place between from state to state. Had Had that continued, the market would have simply brought them down anyway. Go back and read the anti-federalist papers. Everybody reads the federalist papers. But that's only one side of the argument. You're missing 50% of the story if you don't read Cato or, or uh, Brutus or some of these anti-federalist critics, criticisms, and a lot of them have to do with money. And once you start seeing what the real issue is back then, then you see, aha, this was, I'll be very blunt, this was a ploy by a bunch of American English aristocrats, oligarchs, essentially, that put into place a constitution to serve the oligarchs. <laughs> okay, and it's been doing that ever since. Yeah, but back to the precedent. So you, you believe that there's both a shadow government and a precedent yes. has unprecedented yes, power. absolutely. Absolutely, I do. How, how can you square those two then? Because that means if the right precedent comes in, he can kill the whole uh, yeah. deep state. Yeah. Well, look at what happened to Kennedy. Remember the key executive order, I think, in Kennedy's administration was not simply that National Security Action Memorandum 27, where he was uh, shaking up the federal bureaucracy, in particular with respect to the CIA and the Pentagon. The other one was his executive order that authorized the printing of $4 billion worth of a United States notes. A United States – I remember spending some of these Kennedy notes when I was a kid. Yeah. If you look at American currency, a United States note would have a red treasury seal rather than the green seal of a Federal Reserve note. All right? Mm, mm. Uh, a silver certificate would have had a blue seal. A gold certificate would have had an orange seal. And there's still some in circulation, I think. Yes, the, that is still legal currency in the United States. Hmm. But what happened with the Federal Reserve Act is when those notes circulated, the Federal Reserve would simply pull – when they when those notes crossed through the Federal Reserve banks, they'd simply yeah. pull them out of circulation. Yeah, instead of banning them, they delete them. They delete them, Exactly. Hmm. So, in other words, Kennedy bypassed the Federal Reserve by issuing debt-free money, period. There, mm. there, was no print, there was no principle. There was no interest. That's what they were. And they were fully good legal tender in the country. And that's what Trump should do. I think ultimately you're going to see a system like this of some sort. Texas has already moved in that direction by establishing a state bullion depository. Hmm. I think they see the handwriting on the wall. You have uh, finance ministers, the German finance minister coming right out and saying two very important things that I think people really have to latch on to. Number one, the debt growth model is over. And number two, there is no, there is no way forward that is not a reform. In other words, the basic fundamental system itself has to be overhauled. So everybody realizes that he's got a lot of work to do to clean out this this neocon globalist kooky lunacy that we've seen driving the country since since George Bush the second. Mm. I think you're going to see some real interesting Department of Justice investigations going on because Trump has now the access to all of those control files. In other words, that huge surveillance state that the neocon neoliberal crowd built up under Bush and Obama is now in his hands and he can use it against them. Mm. So I think what you're going to see is some very, very quiet Justice Department investigations of these things because the deep state people backing Trump are so in opposition and opposed to that old Clinton-Bush nexus 
So I think I think whether Trump would be inclined to himself or not isn't really the question. The question is, what will his backers want? So I think mm. you're going to see some quiet investigations take place. And they're going to be so very secretive that they're going to be sprung on people if they if they emerge into the light of day at all. The other way that he can use this, again, is as leverage, particularly oh, yeah. against people in Congress that might be inclined to vote against him. You, you saw Paul Ryan when he was sworn in as Speaker of the House again, just making this pathetic yeah. attempt to say, yeah, we've heard your message, we get it, and, you know, we're with you, blah, blah, blah. And, and pre-boost changed side very quickly. And yeah, yeah, mm. real fast. All, mm. of these, all of these old Clinton-Bush people are jumping ship because they know that their days are numbered. So that's, he, again, he's coming into office in a very, very different position than JFK did. Yeah. He's coming into office with, with an actual network of support behind him that goes far beyond his his personal contacts and so on. So there's there's no doubt he's probably the first one since JFK who has the possibility of cleaning house. Of course the big question is right how much do we want to? That's the question. How much are we projecting not just us, everybody actually, because you have everybody from Sure. You have Zionist projecting onto him that he will do their bidding, you have Nazis projecting onto him that they will do their bidding. <laughs> right. You have a busy everybody's projecting onto him. So right. we'll we'll have to see where where it's going. Oh yeah. Time will tell. Mm. But the messages that he's sending out incline me to the view that that he's serious and that these appointments are made with that in mind rather than just another looting project like we've seen going on in this country for the last 30 years. Um, Mm. The thing that people are going to have to watch for, and this again is something that undid Kennedy, I think, Mm -hmm. was Kennedy came into office and appointed C. Douglas Dillon of of Dillon and Reed on on Wall Street, the investment banking house, Mm -hmm. as his secretary of the treasury. And I strongly suspect that that Douglas Dillon was kind of the the man within the Kennedy administration that was the interface with Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And therefore that he represented those deep state interests that ultimately took him out. Mm. And it's very interesting, Al, that Catherine Fitz was the first woman partner at Dylan and Reed. Wow. Yeah. But why doesn't she do books? Oh, listen, she has done a book. It's a book on her website about her experience at, as a partner at Dylan and Reed on Wall Street. Oh, yeah. I mean, my word, that's that says <laughs> that says it all right there. Right. It's an e-book. Uh, it's a PDF book, I should say. It's quite lengthy and quite detailed and quite an inside view. Things. I've heard her talk about some of it. Oh, <laughs> it's skimming the surface. Right. It's skimming the surface. But yeah, people follow her because she's telling the truth about the financial situation in the world and how the politics is kind of coming out of it. Yeah. And what she says and how she analyzes things, I think, would be of extreme interest to Europeans, especially now that Deutsche Bank looks like it's going to fall off a cliff and drag Europe with it. Yeah. But but Deutsche Bank, let's say there is an operative uh, Bormann Brotherhood, if you like. Where do you see them in the geopolitical uh, situation going on? Because who, whoever they are backing, they've done something right with generating millions of um, migrants and uh, managing to wipe up uh, a neo-Nazi wave we haven't seen in a long time. Well, look, I, I've, I've said all along, I've blogged about it, I've talked about it, that 
I think the migrant refugee Islamicization of Europe was a deliberately concocted ploy yeah. to create a sense of European identity and culture for the European Union, mm. which it currently lacks. It didn't help. It led to Brexit. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it didn't work quite out. The, didn't work out quite the way they thought it would. But that's why I think it tried. Merkel it amazes me has kind of reversed her position a little bit. Oh, she had to because she's losing power. Oh yeah, she's she major trouble, and I don't think it's going to work. Mm. I honestly don't. I don't expect her government to survive. I'm hearing rumbles from leave the European Union. Mm. So if Reds, you're looking at the crack up of the EU. But the the bottom line, I think, the crack it up is if the neocons do take power in Washington and pursue this nutty war with Russia agenda, Europe is gone. We can, you know, mm. we can kiss it goodbye. Mm. <laughs> yeah, everybody is trying to leave the sinking ship. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it, we couldn't, look, if there's a Borman Brotherhood, I think what we're watching is Madrid Circular in action. Mm. You know, get Russia and the Chinese and the United States to fight out, and Europe will be left to pick up the rubble, which means essentially Germany. But uh, even in Germany, I, I'm not see, I, I'm not seeing this big <laughs> ground swell for another war with Russia. <laughs> you know, I, I think probably they're pretty tired of that game. You know, <laughs> I, I think they would prefer America and Russia. Yeah, I think they would too. But by the same token, Ursula von der Leyen is talking about tripling the size of the military in the next few years. It's not that many years ago they were not supposed to have a military. Well, yeah, you know, <laughs> and why are they building nuclear warheads for the French? You know, they're not even supposed mm. to be doing any of that. So. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think we're in bigger trouble than all this, actually, because I had Robert Schuck on. Uh, do you know his um, climate change research? No. Well, he's basically, and, and I know he, he's onto something here, because I, I've been talking with with this retired um, geologist, mm -hmm. and he told me a lot about uh, what's really going on in the scientific community regarding this climate change thing, and it's basically a political coup. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but you know this. Here's the thing. According to Robert Schock, what killed off the, the pre-Ice Age civilization was the sun. And it's it's not even an electromagnetic pulse. It's something heavier. I forgot what it's called. But Paulia Laviolette, uh, I think, mm -hmm. speaks about these things. According to his data, we are now in the window. Yeah. I think we've been there for eight years for the, this well, to happen again. No, it's, it's a huge window. Uh, well, it, it may happen after our lifetime. But the thing is, we're completely vulnerable for all of this. We haven't... Uh, well, Obama, he told me Obama has recently given order. I was just going to mention, yes, he, Obama yeah. signed an executive order on space weather. I have a blog coming up about that next Thursday. My blogs beginning today through next Thursday are all about space stories. Okay, I'll, I'll make sure to tune in. Yeah, um, because I think they form kind of a context for that executive order. And they also go back to the stories a couple of weeks ago. Major General uh, Igor Konchenko, or Konchenkov, the Russian general in charge of their forces in Syria. Mm -hmm. Did you see what he said? No. <laughs> you got to hand it to the Russians. They brought these little... <laughs> these little verbal options, you know. <laughs> yeah. 
Konshenkov came out and said, well, Russia is announcing that today all of our anti-aircraft, anti-missile missiles are operational in Syria, to say, and for those who would assume to challenge these installations, they might be surprised at the operational range of these weapons because they are capable, and I'm, I'm using his exact words now, they are capable of taking out any, or pardon me, all unidentified flying objects wow. at great, that's the phrase he used. And I've had people look up that phrase in Russian. Is that the phrase that they use for what we in the English speaking world call UFOs? And that's exactly what the Russian phrase means. Mm. So why is this general saying that? And you had the Iraqi transportation minister two days previous to that coming out and saying, oh, by the way, Iraq was the home to spaceports about 7,000 years ago. (laughs) Because he's a big fan of Zechariah Sitchin. Well, you look at all of these space stories coming out, just this in the last three to four days. Mm. It's amazing. And I think that's the context in which one's executive order has to be viewed. Mm. I've read the actual order. It's it's on the White House website. It's creepy as all get out. Mm. Creepy, creepy, creepy. Because for one thing, Al, he's turned over the study for how the United States is going to prepare for a space weather event to the Department of Defense. Mm. And get this, the counterterrorism unit of the Department of Homeland Security, a.k.a. The Reichsverhaltsamt. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> we know this. So, uh, I'm thinking, wow, that's an unusual set of agencies to be involved with this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think there's more than meets the eye here. So, I have a blog coming up about yeah. it with all of my high octane speculation. Okay, but but you you're aware of this. Um, protection measure for power plants oh, yeah. and all that oh yeah yeah because uh, i mean if something would happen uh, we are toast we are completely toast and it, according to shock nothing has happened yet we're still uh, vulnerable for a solar hiccup he used the term uh, anthropomorphizes it and says that the sun is bipolar it's going into its new bipolar fit yep so uh uh, I've been thinking, and this is uh, more on the spiritual side, maybe what's happening when mankind accelerates in technology so suddenly is a, like a subconscious awareness that timings are running out. So we're trying to, you know, accelerate in skill and uh, become to a level where we can protect ourselves yeah. for what happens. Look, I, know, Because I, we, we haven't managed yet. <laughs> and maybe this, our space brothers are checking out what's going on here. Well, Will they make it this time? Um, yeah. I have some blogs coming up about that too. Okay. Uh, what's the short version? Short version is I've suspected for a long time, I used to talk with George Ann Hughes about it, that the powers that be seem like they're in a big panic and a hurry. Yeah, something is going down. They they know something that they're not talking about. And you know, of course, Richard Sauter's work, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. I've met Richard Sauter. Great researcher. Uh, but anyway. But my point is, his research on um, all these underground bases and uh, underground structures, they're not making that 
out of boredom. No. And, no. I, and I don't think they expect an alien invasion. In, in fact, according to this Firestorm document, they're planning yeah. one <laughs> or, or entertaining yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which me, really means it's endgame. Because how can they save anything after that? What's the save? There's no save. They have to. Well, I don't discount the alien thing. I go several ways on that. But um, yeah, me too. All I can say is I've had the impression that these people are in a mighty big hurry about something. There, there's a statement in the Bible. They know that their time is short. Something, something has them spooked, mm. and they're in a mighty, mighty big hurry. You know, I, I read that thing about DARPA coming out wanting to make the United States warp capable in 100 years. And that floored me. I thought, whoa, what's going on here? That That's huge. So, yeah, there I don't think we have 100 years. Well, who knows? I don't know. I don't know. Plus, you know, every time they announce some sci-fi breakthrough, it means they already have it. Yeah. Let's go to Mars, because now we have to acclimatize people yeah. to the idea of going to Mars. Oh, yeah. The, the space news this week, Al, is just absolutely bizarre. Totally, completely bizarre. Yeah, did you see the, the the people who want to make a federation in space? <laughs> oh yeah, I've got a blog. I've got a blog coming up about that. Yeah. That's one of the stories previous to my Obama executive order blog mm. that I decided to write about. So yeah, it's been a very very strange week of space news, and it convinces me that they know. Some, let's put it this way: I don't think it's so much a case that they know something. I think it's a case of they think they know something, and I think they're in for huge surprises. Uh, right. Yeah. This country has spent trillions of dollars on homeland security and surveillance, and it cannot prevent yeah. the Orlando shooting, the San Bernardino shooting, and we learned that these people are under surveillance. Yeah, but that was never the goal of the surveillance to protect people against well, terrorists. That's an excuse. Of course not. <laughs> of course not. But my point but my point is that very fact alone has revealed what a sham it is yeah. to a significant amount of the population. And that's unprecedented. Mm. Fifteen years ago, after 9-11, everybody's gung-ho for it, protect the country, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And now the whole program is revealed to be a complete sham. Mm. So that factor, you know, things are falling apart at such an amazing rate, it's not even funny. I cannot tell you. Uh, I grew up during the 60s and 70s where when there were all those riots going mm. on in in the big cities in this country and whole neighborhoods turned into rubble mm. i didn't sense then the intensity of disgust with the system that i'm sensing now no it's it's unprecedented and it's not just in america yeah. it's spreading oh i know it's spreading from america basically because yep. it's so v visible there how corrupt it is and yep. when we don't yep. see our own people and our own media replicating this yep. and, and being yep. their puppets, uh, people are waking up here too. I think it's high time, actually. Uh, I do too. Yeah, I, I'm not against it. Uh, although, of course, there may be a few bumps on the road. <laughs> but if they would be as crazy as launch a fake invasion from, from space, uh, that's end game. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, imagine a, a normal person, right? A normal family who doesn't have the resources, the time to think about these things. I mean, we who can afford to have this knowledge and, and entertain these scenarios, we can easily forget how blinded the masses are. But when they are waking up in such a short time span, it's a shock. 
it's a shock to the system. Well, I'll tell you the problem of the big space invasion scenario, a fake space invasion scenario. Mm. And I put the question to you this way, and this is precisely what will happen in this country if they attempt that. And that is that you have to ask yourself the question, given the cynicism towards the government in this country, would the average American trust a government that it knows has lied to them about JFK, lied to them about Watergate, lied to them about BCCI, Waco, Oklahoma City bombing, 9-11, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Are, are people going to trust that government in sufficient numbers to make the fake invasion scenario work? And my answer is no. Mm. Uh, I think it would be a huge, it'd be another huge clusterfuck, pardon my French, but that's what it would be. Yeah, most of, of the people uh, who won't see through that don't believe in these things. And therefore, if it happens, they too will be skeptical. Sure. <laughs> so, exactly. so there, there are that many people who will fall for it, actually. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, you know, there. I think there's something else going on. Uh, I don't know what it is. But, you know, I don't rule out the space angle. But my thinking is, if if you don't rule it out, it's genuine. And they think they know something about it, which they probably don't. But they think they know something about it. And I think they're in for huge surprises. Um, so, you know, it could play itself out anyway. I've just, I've been sending up the prayers like I've never sent them up because um, we are in a mess. Yeah. And, and what do you make of the takedown of the internet? <laughs> it's, co it's connected to that. Yeah. It's a cyber war going on right now. Yeah, there's, there's and it's nothing to do with Russia or China. <laughs> no, no, no. For one thing, the Russians aren't so stupid as to try and pull no. anything like that. I, I think there's possibly two two possibilities here. The, the first is it's somebody in this country within the intelligence community attempting either to create a false flag and pin it on Russia test things or and i did a blog about this last week i think it was hmm. uh about people in the american intelligence community who've been watching these internet events and mm -hmm. they have come to the conclusion that someone is reconnoitering the entire structure of the internet to figure out how to take the whole thing down through a cyber attack. Yeah, but like John McAfee says, it's not possible. It's uh, you, you can only shut down the entire internet or nothing because uh, it's like taking a spider web. That's that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. that's what I mean. They're trying to they're trying to reconnoiter how to do oh, the whole thing. Right, right, right. And yeah, that that's the conclusion that some analysts are coming to. So my second possibility is I'm thinking it may be some independent group doing this that is not a state actor at all huh. why, why would they do that yeah not international oh yeah that's good yeah right huh. yep 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 all of our files are free and will remain free if you like the show you can show support by donating one dollar to help with expenses Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. So um, uh, that was uh, that was a great uh, session, I think. Um, mm -hmm. So we really exposed a bomb there. Yeah, I asked you in part one. I asked you 
what does Carter, Clintons, Obama, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, was it Eisenhower? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what do they have in common? Mm-hmm. They've all been in Bariloche and probably visiting with a power base there. I mean, I wonder who took over from Martin Bormann. Have you had any ideas about that? Uh I have mentioned in one of my books, The Nazi International, it's in a footnote, mm-hmm. uh, I've mentioned an, a name that is connected to a spy, a Nazi spy, that was expelled, actually, from Argentina by the Peron government. I have heard reports that at a party in the 1980s and i've never been able to verify this so i'm hesitant to mention it but i've heard reports that a group of german businessmen at a party in the 1980s one of them got rather drunk it was a fellow by with the same last name and started talking openly about the bell and then it was kind of hurriedly rushed out of the you know hurriedly rushed out of the room same last name as what uh, I haven't mentioned the last name. It's in, oh, it's, in okay. it's in the footnote in the Nazi International. Right. Mm-hmm. But the the impression I'm getting, Al, investigating this whole story is that Bormann's leadership appears, and and again, this is an impression. Please understand, it's not a, to my mind, it's not an arguable case yet. Mm-hmm. But the impression is that the leadership was then turned over to a kind of committee or, if you will, a politburo of very, very wealthy, rich businessmen, Mm. largely of German background, that have connections to each other in their business and so on and so forth. Mm. Uh, I have strongly suspected for many years that there is a connection to the World Anti-Communist League in Taiwan, now called the World Endowment for Democracy. They've they've rebranded themselves, but it's the same outfit. Mm. Uh, allegedly a CIA front, but this also is an organization that is known to have had connections with these post-war Nazis as well. And, of course, Taiwan would be an interesting place for them to base some of their operations, given the Kuomintang government of of Chiang Kai-shek took refuge there, Mm. given the involvement, allegedly, of some of that nationalist Chinese gold in in this hidden system of finance I've been talking about. So that's my impression. It's some sort of committee. Think of it as a mafia committee, you know, heads heads of the families getting together. Yeah, probably – one person uh, wouldn't take over. It would probably be a board, as you said. Right, right. It would be too much power for one man anyway. Right, right. Uh, and I don't think Bormann would have trusted the heritage only for one man. That would be risky. He, they were already organizing themselves as uh, spiders, as mother corporations over mother corporations over mother corporations. So that's right. in the cartel corporation psychology right exactly and the cartel model let's let's go back to what i wrote in the third way the cartel model is very much a part of their post-war planning so yeah i think this is what you have Mm, mm. so um when they invite down the presidents to Bariloche and, and uh, presumably then to Hitler's estate, there's evidence actually that several of them have been even to the estate. Then mm-hmm. 
it has to be more than just symbolic value. Yes. Uh, symbolic value is one thing. Another is that there has to, they have to have some kind of power base there. Yeah. Otherwise, they could meet in uh, Buenos Aires or Brazil or whatever. Right, right. I, there's no doubt in my mind that, that that outfit still exists there, has a heavy presence in that region. Uh, I think Harry Cooper's research has mm-hmm. done an admirable, admirable job of showing that this is the fact. Uh, and in addition to this, you've got Peter Lavenda's research to add to this. So, yeah, I, there's no doubt in my mind that this is still a very, very central base of power for that group of people. Yeah, and uh, maybe it's like a, some kind of Camp David, like we take, <laughs> we take our cozy meetings here. Yeah, exactly. You know? Go play golf. Not, and- not the war meetings, <laughs> but uh, it's like being invited to the White House or something. <laughs> I don't know. So, yeah. Uh, no, that's a very perceptive observation uh, of the guy who alerted us to the fact that so many presidents have been there. And uh, yep. and I see that the only Democrat who we don't know has been there is JFK, maybe right. the guy who threatened to expose it. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, or at least uh, Bowman. Uh, again, yeah. I, I go back to the fact that when Kennedy issues that memorandum turning over covert operations to the Pentagon and taking it out of the c- control of the CIA, mm. he is, to my mind, taking direct and knowledgeable action against not only the CIA, but if he as I suspect, did know that the boots on the ground for a lot of these covert operations that the CIA was running, the overthrow of Farouk in Egypt, the the overthrow of Mossadegh in Iran, uh, the overthrow of Arbenz in in Guatemala, that the boots on the ground in many cases were these post-war Nazis. So he had to have known this. Mm. And therefore, when when he's taking that action against the CIA, he's really taking action at removing the cover under which this post-war fascist yeah. mafia operates. Yeah, because Galen is the middleman between Dulce and Bormann. Yes. He, he would probably be the main Absolutely. communicator. Yeah. Abs- well, Galen's look at Galen at that time of history. He's not only the middleman between Dulles and Borman, he's the middleman between the Texas oil men and all of these connections. He's He's got his fingers in, in the Odessa uh, Ratline operation, and therefore he's kind of the middleman for a lot of the terrorist organizations and so on. Mm. And at the end of his career, when he finally retires, well, where does he get feted and celebrated? Yeah, where? Well, in Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. So it, it, the whole the whole thing there. I think you're absolutely right. Kennedy appears to be taking aim across the board at, uh, at all the centers of power of the American deep state. And one of them obviously is this, this Nazi connection. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, no, let's not forget that Galen also is the bridge between Russia and yep. uh, the president yeah, or exactly. Soviet. Yeah. So he was a central figure here. And then we have all those uh, you mentioned. We have the two factions then, the Nazis in the NASA and uh, Masons in the NASA mm-hmm. that uh, Hoagland has uncovered. And like I said, I don't regard the magicians as a real power base. I think they're just a fringe of the Masons. So so if we have those two conflicting interests, or what did you call them, a convenient? What's an alliance of convenience? Yeah. But let's, let's look at the magicians for just a moment, if we may. Mm-hmm. Um, 
what Hoagland is getting at there is the the occult influence and symbology that yeah. you see at, at work with NASA. Now, I and others uh, have argued that there is an occult connection with 9-11, if you look at it. There's an occult connection with JFK, if you look at it. I spent mm. a whole chapter in, in, the, in that book. Yeah, I was going there right now, actually. Well, the, l let me point out that the Nazis had their own interest in the occult, as has also the certain... Masons. Well, not only the Masons, but certain elements, old families in this country, the old rich money in the Northeast, have had their own connections yeah. to this. Mm. So you're looking really at, a, at, I think, not so much a group, but you're looking at an ideology that crosses groups. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think that that you may be right that perhaps this really isn't so much a faction as, as an ideology that various groups can practice and do practice. Mm. Yeah, so that's why I, I think everything in the magicians is covered by the masons. So mm -hmm. you don't really need to, to explain anything about the magicians. And by the way, in numbers, there's so few anyway that uh, mm -hmm. it's... But if we, if we see NASA being uh, divided then by American patriots represented in, in the masons who... Mm -hmm. who like I said, they can be corrupt. They can uh, have uh, stuff to be criticized about, but at least they're not loyal to Borman or any other contemporary right. power player. Right. Uh, but you, uh, And you see the same also when you talk about the mafia versus the... Yeah, I, I think I just talked myself away from the point here. Uh, I was actually <laughs> going to tie this... I was going to tie this into the ritual aspect. You call it the alchemy of... Yes of, uh, yeah, conspiracy or assassination. Could you explain what's this magical ritual aspect to the Kennedy thing? Well, the the ritual aspect of, of these types of operations, and the reason I call it alchemy, is because alchemy is as much about transmuting or changing human consciousness as it is about transmuting base metals into gold. Mm. And if you look at the Kennedy assassination carefully... It is all staged, planned, in a very sort of magical context. You have the, the three roads there coming together under the triple underpass, a, a main elm in Houston, which forms a trident, which is, you know, the symbol of Poseidon. And you see this again, of course, at 9-11 with, with the cladding on the World Trade Center towers. Mm -hmm. You have Dealey Plaza with its own Masonic associations because that's where the first Grand Lodge was in, in Dallas. It was close and actually at Dealey Plaza. In addition to this, you have the famous photo of the so-called three tramps in Dallas, and that is in itself a Masonic symbolism because the three people that supposedly murdered Hiram Abif in, in Masonic ritual, you know, Yabulon, uh, Yabulo and Yubilon, these are the three tramps that you see in Dallas that mm. are very famously photographed and, and displayed over and over and over. Then you have the ritual murder, uh, the, as Michael Hoffman puts it. And please, please understand, I'm not with Mr. Hoffman and, and his Holocaust revisionism and Institute of Historical Review stuff, but he does make an interesting point here about the ritual murder of the king mm. in, in public. And this is part of the psychology, the psychological planning of events like this. You, you openly parade yourself and pull off a, a fantastic 
human sacrifice. And then you concoct a, a, a story after the event that's total nonsense, and everyone knows it's total nonsense. But what that does is you reveal the method by which you did it, and then you reveal everybody else's helplessness in the face of it. And we see the same thing happen with 9-11. Mm. And it's interesting to me, we see even in the recent Dallas shootings, well, those occurred within three blocks of Dealey Plaza. Mm. And again, we have clearly in this country, there were clear news reports of more than one shooter. And now guess what's happened? The narrative has changed to one shooter. Mm. So again, the pattern is there yet again. So this is what I mean by, by the alchemy of the assassination, because what it did, and I can tell you, very frankly, being alive at the time as a little boy, and remembering the effect that this had on the country. Mm. Before that event, it was still possible to believe all of the, the nice things about the American narrative. You know, this these types of things can't happen here. There's no there's no secret or hidden cabal or junta running things. After that assassination, regardless of what people would say or openly talk about in public, no one that I knew in my parents' circle of friends really believed it. Mm. But these were conversations you had over the dinner table or you know, while playing cards or something. You didn't talk about this openly in public. And it only changed, started to change when researchers – started to dig into to the Warren report and started overturning some of it, then people were emboldened to speak out more publicly. Mm. But there was a there was a very real palpable change in the mood of the country. And that mood persisted really all the way through the Vietnam War, through Watergate, uh, through the Carter era until Ronald Reagan came along and sort of restored the old narrative, so to speak. So it was a social engineering, either if it was uh, intention or not, it was a social engineering event. Oh, yeah. Just like 9 11. Absolutely. absolutely. So we see how these events push us more and more to back uh, the military industrial complex and the yes. national security state. Yes. So that would be uh, to the interest of both the traditional Wall Street city of London oligarchs that Clinton represents, and it would also be in the interest of the fascist international who are so deeply entrenched into corporatism and, and all that. Right. But it wouldn't be to the backers of, uh, I mean, to the mafia, to the casino industry. Right. Uh, right. That backs Trump, and 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 those are also, but they they were on board back in the day with oh yes against uh, Kennedy, yes absolutely, because you've got to remember, Mister Global had not yet really kind of revealed his hand to the extent that they have now. I mean, you look at what's going on now, and Mister Global clearly wants to establish a corporate-run, centralized, top-down management global government system. Yeah. And their track record, let's be honest here, has been one of abject, utter failure. Mm. And this is why I think you now see countries like Britain uh, doing this this amazing about-face with, with the EU. And, and I think this is coming from a certain faction within the British oligarchy, just like Trump is coming from a similar faction in this country that is not happy with the way that the people running things have been running it. 
Mm. Uh, you mentioned Robert Roger Stone. It's important for people to remember that this this man was involved with the Goldwater campaign. He was involved with President Nixon and so on and so forth. So clearly, Trump has his little brain trust. Mm. Uh, he's not just shooting from the hip here. This is a very cagey, calculating man. And I do think he represents a kind of factional infighting that's taking place behind the scenes. If he should lose, it's only going to intensify. Yeah. I, I predict nothing but disaster with the Clinton presidency, maybe a little less disaster with the Trump presidency. But, you know, I'm very skeptical of the man. Yeah. No, it's hard to tell. Uh, it's like they say, the lesser of two evils. And, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's the no change, uh, but uh, gradually continuing down uh, into the toilet with Clinton. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it's the risk of disastrous change <laughs> yeah. with Donald. And then you have to just figure out what you want. Do you want change at any price, which would be done? Or are you more like uh, afraid of change and you want to kill yourself slowly? Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's not a choice you should really have to have. And now we see that uh, for the first time in American uh, modern history, a third party could be, be actually viable. I don't know about that. I, I go back to what I said earlier. I do think that you're still looking with this election, you're still looking at the long-term consequences and fallout from the Kennedy assassination when the American deep state just openly, in my opinion, took over the government. And everything's been kind of a farcical sideshow ever since then. Mm. Um, I don't know that a third party is viable because I don't think – The American population has woken up to that extent. Certainly, a, a large segment of it has. Mm. Uh, I, I see, I see revolt coming more in, from the states and from regional alliances of of the states before a third party would ever get off the ground. But uh, we see that the CIA is founded under Truman. Yes, we, we see that the NSA is founded under Eisenhower. Now, Actually, why, why, Truman. Truman. Was, Both of them uh, founded under Truman? Yes. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was exposed under Eisenhower. But wh why would they want to – is CIA and NSA two different uh, power factions uh, in all actuality? I think to a certain degree they are. Um, when you look at the national security state in this country, you've got such a smorgasbord – of intelligence agencies, my word, you've got the FBI, CIA, NSA, NRO, DEA, uh, Office of Naval Intelligence, Marine Intelligence, the, you know, the various military intelligence groups. It, it's Homeland Security. Homeland Security, on and on this goes. Mm. Each of them, I suspect, has their own approach to things, and I suspect the NSA would be a little nervous about some of the the covert operations aspects of the CIA when you create so many intelligence agencies it's it's bound to be the case that they would be occasionally at loggerheads with each other mm. uh, only when something comes along that could be terribly upsetting to the deep state do they do they cooperate and coordinate and mm. and i think you see this very clearly in the kennedy assassination because they're the Secret Service, and so on and so forth. Everything indicates that this was coordinated at a very high level. And I suspect, ultimately, this coordination comes from the Wall Street 
uh, financial community. And then, of course, from Alan Dulles and, and, and people like that. But wasn't Joe Kennedy connected to uh, especially the Astro family, but also Wall Street and even Nazis? Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. He was he was even connected to McCarthy. I mean, he contributed to McCarthy's campaign. So he had his he had his fingers in a number of pies all over the country. And uh, when you've when you've got that kind of power and when you've got that kind of influence and wealth, you're bound to get a certain amount of information through private channels that otherwise you wouldn't get. Yeah, wouldn't they both Kennedy brethren then grow up with a certain awareness of what's going oh, on yeah. behind the Absol- scenes? Absolutely, absolutely, Ma- making them sensitive. To to that when they take power and therefore also easier determined to do something about that if they want to, you know, take control. Right, right, right. Uh, because there is there is this um, Nazi spin on the conspiracy theories that JFK was really, in, he wasn't a lapsed uh, right-winger, that he actually was true to his father's heritage and indeed that <laughs> he was Nazi-sympathetic himself and that he was threatening to expose the Israeli nuclear arsenal or something like that. You heard? Anything? I, have, I haven't heard that, but I, I do find it very interesting that Joe Kennedy actually pressured and lobbied Senator McCarthy to put his son Bobby as chief counsel to his mm. committee. Now, just imagine had that happened, what the political history of this country would have been like. Mm-hmm. It would have been vastly different. But of course, the man that he put into in charge as chief counsel of his committee was the infamous Roy Cohn. And if you dig around Roy Cohn long enough, lo and behold, you find that he has connections to oh, guess who? Donald Trump. So, <laughs> Joe coming, yeah, chickens are coming home to roost. Yeah, the chickens are coming home to roost. <laughs> you know, all these dots connect. So. So when you look at the Kennedy family, particularly Joe Kennedy and, and some of his, his maneuverings and, and so on behind the scenes, you, you find exactly what you're saying. You find that the Kennedy family is a bit more right-wing than the left would have us believe they really are. Mm. Uh, even, even Senator Teddy Kennedy up until about the 1960s was adamantly, adamantly opposed to abortion in this country and then just virtually changed directions and became kind of the darling of, of the left because of it. Mm. Uh, so you have a family that's, that's well practiced in its, in its politics and, and that was positioning itself, I think, to, to be like a dynasty of, of sorts. And the powers that be didn't want them to be that dynasty. I mean, Kennedy himself, had he had a second term, would then have stepped down. And then you have two terms with Bobby Kennedy. And he steps down. You have two terms with Teddy Kennedy. So, in other words, you've got the makings of a dynasty there, very much like the Bush family. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. And um, and the Clintons, what they have become, too. Well, the Clintons really, to me, the Clintons look to me like they're more of uh, outringers. They're they're not a dynasty because I, you know, I can't imagine anybody thinking that Chelsea Clinton <laughs> could hold could hold public office as, as local dog catcher, much less president or anything like like that. No, they're they're part of the Bush. Uh, yeah, they're part of the Bush base. Yeah. yeah, they're they're definitely part of the Bush the Bush power base. Mm. So. Um, yeah, and we we also have this. Uh, I mean, once you throw Hitler into the mix, with uh, <laughs> you know the new theory about 
JFK being killed for not marching in line with the Bormenreich. Right. Uh, but you have also this other aspect, which is even bigger, which is the, which is uh, substantiated both by the interview with uh, Caddy, Douglas Caddy, that uh, Danielist, uh, yes. doctoralist did, that Sergei Khrushchev came out and, and admitted, and that the CIA documents allude to. And that is the flying saucer aspect. But yes. if your hypothesis about Roosevelt is right, these things may be very closely Deeply. tied. Deeply connected, yes. Yes, absolutely. Could we offer a scenario for that? Well, let's go back and, and, and bring people up to speed with what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. There, Kennedy ordered, prior to his assassination, when he was negotiating with Khrushchev to mount a joint American-Soviet lunar program, which, according to Hoagland, and according to Hoagland's contacts with Sergei Khrushchev, Khrushchev's son, mm. his father actually finally, about a month before the assassination, accepted he was he was going to do it. Mm. And of course, Khrushchev was was then overthrown in the Soviet Union after the assassination, placed under virtual house arrest. But Kennedy, apparently, as part of this negotiation effort, ordered the CIA to go through all of its uh, UFO files and weed out the ones that had clear national security implications, but to turn over as many UFO files to the Soviet Union as, as they could. Mm. Now let's do some dot connecting here. If the CIA number one is in bed with Galen and his outfit, which clearly at that time, it certainly is. And number two, if you have, if you have a, Clear Nazi interest in exotic advanced aerodynes and, and propulsion technologies as clearly is also the case. And if number three, you have with Roswell, as I believe, a, a clear indication of a Nazi technology that may have crashed there, then Kennedy, by doing this, is also in in by implication threatening the exposure of this whole post-war American alliance with with this fascist crowd to gain control of this technology. Mm. And I think this is what's being protected. Now, let's look at what happens inside of NASA after the Kennedy assassination, Mm. because this is a, to my mind, this is a crucial detail that tells you that not everything about Apollo is as it seems, and I'm saying this both for the people that defend the public narrative as is and to the Apollo hoaxer crowd, because the man put in charge of Cape Canaveral as senior flight administrator is one of these post-war Nazis. He's a fellow by the name of Dr. Kurt Davis. And Davis, when you dig into this guy, he's not a rocket scientist at all. His specialty is plasmas and high-voltage electricity and measurement. And he was involved with the Bell Project. I've mentioned this many, many times. So what is this guy doing as the senior flight administrator at Cape Canaveral during Project Apollo? Now, remember, this is after the Kennedy assassination. Mm. What I suspect that this represents is that a deal has been made with the, you know, the Masons, let's say, within NASA 
the Patriots, as you call them, mm. and this Nazi group for access to some of their technology. And the reason they need that access to that technology is, number one, they got to get through the Van Allen belts. Mm. Okay. Now, this technology, if you, if you look at it carefully, does have the possibility of damping effects of radiation. But more importantly, this technology, if you suspect that the moon might be more massive in its gravity than has been publicly acknowledged, this technology would allow you to get off the moon once you got on it. Mm. Now, that's my scenario. I suspect that the quid pro quo for access to that technology came in the form of, okay, well, We'll let you have this technology, but you let, have to let us have access to whatever it is that you may find up there. Mm. And if this, is, if this is the quid pro quo, then Kennedy, by making his overtures to Khrushchev in the previous years, would have threatened that agenda. So in other words, it's, it, I think Mr. Hoagland is absolutely right. The Apollo program is really about the suspicion that there may have been some technology that somebody left behind up there, and we got to go see, number one, if it exists, and number two, bring as much of it back as we can, and if we can't bring it back, at least photograph it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. So I think this is all, what's all in play here. Um, and you know that puts me that puts me once again in the uncomfortable position of being neither an advocate of the public narrative of of the Apollo program, on the one hand, and on the other, not being an advocate of the Apollo thing was was completely hoaxed. Mm. Uh, I think there's I think there's a middle way between the two that raises some interesting questions of its own. Yeah, indeed. Um, so uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go even further into NASA and all that later, both with you and with Hoagland, actually, um, because NASA is such a big story in itself. Oh, but yes, it's, absolutely. <laughs> but like you say, <coughs> excuse me. Bless you. <laughs> Thanks. Now, it's, it's of course, very deeply tied to, to Kennedy, too. But if we try to put ourselves into Kennedy's shoes, mm -hmm. if, you know, we know already he's going to, do revolutionary changes for to the best of the people as far as we can see because he's he challenging uh, federal reserve is to the best of the people and uh, getting control back with economy he's challenging the intelligence uh, run amok intelligence services that either if they are controlled by Bowman or someone else or are mm -hmm. just independent power players they're not beholden to the people Right, which is what he's trying to to achieve again. He's trying to he's threatening to expose the, some things running around in our atmosphere mm -hmm. uh, scenario, and maybe even now the new one that he's going to expose that Hitler still lives, or at least that we're dealing with Bormann. Because I, I'm thinking when he's tr starting to expose all this and threatening all this. There are, there are some levels before they decide to kill him, and one of those levels are negotiation or blackmailing. Mm -hmm. And certainly they must have been in touch with Kennedy for that mm -hmm. and maybe failed. And that's maybe how he learns about the real power player behind the scene, yes. that he gets upset every time someone new stretches out and, you know, he's brought into a room, a smoke-filled room <laughs> full of back players he gets provoked because he and his brothers really thought that they could run. Oh, everything looks as if they thought they could run a people-governed right. authority there. 
and really right. take on this. He wouldn't do it if he didn't think he could take them on. Well, remember, too, that Kennedy made that famous speech at the Waldorf Astoria to the uh, yeah. to the business community yeah. in which he very explicitly said that the idea of secret societies and all of this is wholly repugnant to the American tradition. Mm. Well, you know, here's a president of the United States talking about secret societies with the clear implication that, you know, this is all part of some vast conspiracy. Yeah, threatening okay. the whole world over. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is a president saying this. Mm. And so you have to wonder, what secret societies is he talking about? Is he talking about Hoagland's Masons inside of NASA? Is he talking about this Nazi group? Is he talking about the mafia? Well, the Kennedys were involved at some point in opposition to all of these things. Mm. In this respect, I do view the Kennedys as at least being genuinely patriotic. They realized, I think part of it's, again, coming out of their experience with the whole McCarthy era, mm. that they realized that there's something drastically wrong with the federal government. It's It's got too many hidden players involved. So, so you think he realized that all these committees uh, with all these different focuses that were running amok through the 50s, he realized that there was external hands Oh, sure. Absolutely. Let's remember that that Bobby and, and JFK were both involved with the Kefauver investigations of the mafia. Mm. And yet, you know, they make their deal with the mafia and he gets elected because of the shenanigans in Cook County and then they turn on him. Yeah, because they, they did crack down on, on their former uh, allies. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Bobby Kennedy, when he was attorney general, uh, summarily had had Carlos Marcello down in New Orleans rounded up and deported. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So uh, they, they, you know, there's a, those famous exchanges between, uh, I think it was either Bobby or, or JFK and, and Jimmy Hoffa. Right. So, yeah, you know, they're, they're coming out of that, that 1950s committee milieu, plus their own connections to Senator McCarthy. They're looking at all of this and, and, they're thinking there's something very drastically wrong with the American New State. Yeah, didn't the Tobit document even say right out that there was connections between um, Hoffa and uh, who, who was it that he bribed? Hundred. Oh, oh, golly, I think, yeah, I know yeah. who you're talking about, Alan. <laughs> For the life of me, I can't remember the name. I, I, I Yeah, I think you're right. I can't remember the name. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, it, it may be LBJ, actually. Well, well, LBJ, I mean, he's he's kind of the center focus of the book because LBJ is he's Hillary Clinton corrupt. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I I actually think that uh, the president in House of Cards, his personality is partly based on LBJ. LBJ. And and Clinton, he's like the cocktail from hell. You have Nixon, Clinton (laughs) and LBJ in one man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just awful. You know, LBJ had his own murky connections in Texas. You know, he was elected by the so-called landslide in what appears to be a a very clear case of ballot stuffing in a key county in Texas. And then, of course, you've got his connections to uh, Bobby Baker, who was at the time of the assassination coming under increasing scrutiny in the Senate for being kind of a bagman for all sorts of bad people, including LBJ. LBJ was literally looking at prison time. If that 
whole situation had continued. And then, yeah, of course, and Kennedy was going to drop him off the ticket from yeah, and Kennedy was going to drop him off the ticket. So LBJ is the perfect man if you're planning an assassination to contact to make certain arrangements. You know, planning the Texas trip with Governor Connolly. He's also in the position to if if assassination becomes successful he's in a position to coordinate secret service activity he then is in a position to coordinate cover-up and let's remember one final thing that i did not mention in the book but this is very important for your listeners to mm-hmm. to grasp there was a thumbprint a smudged thumbprint that appeared i believe on the sill of the window of the sixth floor in the texas school book depository that was investigated in the 1990s when they finally got a hold of this smudged thumbprint from the Kennedy assassination archives, all right? Mm-hmm. When this thumbprint was investigated, they hauled in an old Texas fingerprint expert. I mean, the man was well-known as an expert in this whole part of the country from Texas to uh, New Mexico, Arizona, Oklahoma, Louisiana. He, you know, he was the guy that you went to when you really wanted to identify a print. Yeah. When he looked at this thumbprint, he was he was consulted in the blind. They also gave him a comparative thumbprint of a fellow by the name of Malcolm Wallace. Mm. And when he compared the authentic print to the smudge thumbprint from the Texas School Book Depository, he found no less than 35 parallel identifying markers and came to the conclusion that the smudged print belonged to the same fellow. Mm. And then it was revealed that this was Malcolm Wallace's print. Well, who's Malcolm Wallace? Malcolm Wallace was a hired gun for Lyndon Johnson. Mm. So, in other words, there's even a bit of evidence to suggest that whoever was firing from the sixth floor of the Texas school was a Johnson man. Was a Johnson man. Lee Harvey Oswald had nothing to do with it. It may have been a hired gunman for for Lyndon Baines Johnson. But, but you you know, his role, shouldn't that be plausible deniability that even if he's in on it at some point they say okay uh, uh, he can't know he can't know too much exactly this is where i was going because a smudge thumbprint to me might indicate that they planted a little bit of evidence Mm. to keep a hold or control over lbj you know this is rather similar to the smudged handprint that was allegedly found on the rifle that connected it to Oswald. There's there's every bit of evidence to suggest that this was put on the rifle after Oswald was stone cold dead in order to make him, you know, the lone assassin. So there's so much here going do, on. Do, do you think uh, LBJ would be in on uh, Bowman's involvement? I mean, the, the fact that they got weapons from Argentina indicates that Bowman's network was, or, or Galen's was involved in a very low level uh, Detail. Well, let's put it this way. Let's put it this way. Lyndon Johnson was also apparently at a party at the Murkisons the night before the assassination. This according yeah. to his alleged, alleged mistress. Yeah. Now, I, I don't know if this story is true or not, but the fact that Richard Nixon was there the night before, the fact that apparently even J. Edgar Hoover had been there attending a party at the Murkisons. What this suggests to me is that some level, these people may have known that they were dealing with 
a, a real honest to goodness bona fide murder incorporated in the form of this Nazi international. I do think Lyndon Johnson had some knowledge of something going to happen in Texas mm. prior to the assassination. Uh, I don't think that Lyndon Johnson was ever clued in to the extent of the breadth and depth of the involvement of, of the assassination until after after it was all over. Other than, he, other than maybe lending one of his men to, to, right. to ensure that he was not betrayed, that he was, uh, his interests were protected. Yeah, very possibly. He would have to loan out one of his men. But the, yeah. and, then, and then he can have plausible deniability and yet trust that the process will go as right. it should. And then right. in the aftermath, uh, you know, get a full insight from his own people. Right. Well, let's remember, as I point out in the book, Lyndon Johnson, originally Lyndon Johnson was scheduled to ride in the same limousine as President Kennedy. And it was he himself at the last minute who insisted that Governor Connolly and his yeah. wife mm. be in the limousine in front of President Kennedy and, and Jackie Kennedy, and he, Johnson, would ride in a following limousine trailing a few cars behind with Senator Yarborough from Texas. And Senator Yarborough was anything but a, a friend of Lyndon Johnson. He, you know, he couldn't stand the guy. Mm. And there's, as I put in the book, there's an interesting little vignette that comes out of the detailed assassination research that apparently Lyndon Johnson either had a walkie-talkie or an earpiece and was listening as the motorcade is going down through Dallas, was listening to the thing actually happening at the time. Yeah. So there's all of these little indicators that Johnson knew something was going to happen and did nothing to prevent it from... He was certainly deeply involved, but he... he um According to Roger Stone that we mentioned, uh, then uh, he, he looks at Johnson as the, even the main brain behind it. Well, he was he was he would have certainly had to have been involved. I mean, let's look at another uh, another set of evidence here, Al, that indicates his potential involvement, and that's the strange behavior of the Secret Service on that day. Mm. Uh, when when the motorcade starts out from from Love Field in Dallas, you can go online and see videos of Secret Service agents being ordered not to accompany Kennedy's limousine on the side of the limousine. Mm. Now, that's normal standard security procedure. Normally, in a motorcade, Secret Service agents would also have been riding on the two little uh, platforms on the back of the limousine, all right? And they were warned off. And you can actually go online on YouTube and see one of these Secret Service agents being warned off. And he turns around and he looks at the person ordering him away from the president's limousine and raises his hands and kind of shrugs his shoulders like, what the heck? You know, since when? Mm. Uh, you look at the other security procedures in Dallas. The Dallas police, the motorcade would normally, under normal circumstances, have had police escorts to the sides of the limousine in addition to the Secret Service. And again, this does not happen. Mm. Now, who would be in a position with access to the Secret Service to make orders like that? It certainly wouldn't have been Governor Connolly. It certainly would have had to come from somewhere within the executive branch and the only one with the pull to pull off 
in Dallas, both the Dallas police and the Dallas sheriff and the Secret Service, would probably have been Lyndon Johnson. Mm. Right. Uh, we are, uh, but I don't think he he was the uh, the main brain anyway, because no, no, uh, even was, though he was in on it, because we see an interesting pattern develop in the aftermath of everything. Uh, we see that he, at his old age, seems to have regrets. Uh, yes. Bad yes. conscious something. He he takes yes. heavily to alcohol. He starts going rogue. Starts to admit on tape, like we discussed last time, yes. that there may have been a conspiracy. Sure, pin it on Soviets, but that's how irresponsible they were back then. They not only kill their own leader, but they're willing to make people think it may be the big well, man. Let me drop let me drop something else into the mix that I didn't mm. put in the book and that I've never talked about before, and that is the fact that when Apollo 11 landed on the moon, guess who was not watching? <laughs> Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson. He knew yeah. it was uh, all for show. Well, I don't know that it was all for show. I, you know, again, I'm not an Apollo hoaxer. I think we went, but I don't think. No, no, I'm on Hoagland's side. Uh, I think NASA themselves created the hoax theory to, yeah. you know, guide us away from the secret space program. Right. Yeah, and Lyndon Johnson, I think, knows that there's something going on, something shady going on in NASA. So he's. He's the one that, that insisted on carrying forward Kennedy's dream. In fact, he was the one that, that gave the dream to Kennedy. He, he was an adamant, ardent space advocate. So Johnson, peculiarly, on, on the day that Apollo 11 lands, is there at his ranch in Texas, uh, not watching TV and apparently getting drunk. Wow! Even though he's a big cheerleader uh, yeah. for space. Yeah, even even though he even though he was you know the one that drove that vision forward. Huh. So you know, again, we have a little telltale sign, as you say, that maybe there's some guilty conscience in action here. Yeah, and many people think that his death is suspicious. That oh, they yeah. may actually have to taken him out because they suspect that he's not to be trusted anymore. He could actually spill the beans. What do you think? Well, I, I think it's definitely a possibility. Uh, Lyndon Johnson did have heart problems all of his life. He had suffered a massive heart attack when he was still Senator Senate Majority Leader. Mm. Uh, so he did have uh, health problems all of his life. Right. But the fact that he dies home alone at his ranch of a heart attack, um, again, I find rather suspicious because it would be very easy to take him out in that fashion. They certainly have the, the means to do it mm. and do it in a way that won't raise any suspicion. And this, again, happens after Johnson has that now famous or infamous interview with Walter Cronkite where he says, yeah, maybe it was a conspiracy. So if you're part of the assassination group and LBJ himself starts – you know, to, to crack and, and break and, and talk about possible conspiracies uh, and then turns around and, and orders Walter Cronkite not to air that little bit of news. Yeah. Um, that's, to me, yet another telltale sign that you may be right. Maybe they decided they couldn't afford to have this ex-president that was in charge of the cover-up and everything else flapping his gums because of a guilty conscience. 
Yeah, because it's very hard to to keep uh, track of the web of lies. We see that in all guilty people. We we see that oh, when yes. when the bushes are asked where they were at nine eleven. You see all sorts of clumps. Well, you see that you see that with George Bush and, and the Kennedy assassination too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, exactly. So. There's so many similarities. <laughs> but but I don't get why JFK, he, he wasn't a, a baby. Why would he choose such a vice president? Because if we look at the psychology of the pick for vice presidents, we always see that weak president, clueless presidents, they have like clever spiders behind them. Mm-hmm. And then we see that clever presidents, they have total goofballs behind them and that's an insurance because people who are in on the deep state game they want idiots as vice president so uh, first of all not to have any direct threat from the vice president you know plotting Mm -hmm. to overthrow the president Mm -hmm. like we see very clearly described in in the serious house of cards it's what it's all about but then again they can't even they they also have to uh, ensure that uh, uh, the people who take over are so crazy that mm-hmm. even the power elite, or, or, or not crazy, or, or independent, so that the power elite can't do anything. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can present you every American president as an example, but but let's just take two. Let's take Bush Senior, who had this clueless, dimwit. What was his called? Um, Dan Quayle. <laughs> yeah, nobody wanted him as president. Not the, either the New World Order, right? Right. And then you have uh, like. Um, Bush Jr. who has uh, Cheney mm-hmm. because there Quayle and Bush Sr. has changed places so Cheney would be Bush Sr. and Dubia would be the new Don Quayle so when Kennedy puts in a guy like uh, LBJ that's that's mm-hmm. in itself is almost reckless to a criminal degree Well, let's look at it very carefully. Um, At that time, you have to remember that the deep state had not really ever stepped publicly into the public view in a major way. There were, of course, hints of it with with the the main crisis that led to the Spanish-American War. There were hints of it with the assassination back in the 19th century with President Garfield. But it had stayed more or less quiet. Mm. So in terms of the politics of the day that that, uh, President Kennedy is facing at the Democratic Convention at that time, you have to remember that Richard Nixon, whatever else you say about him, had a very powerful political machine and had a lot of backing in the Mm. country at that time. Mm. And everybody knew that the race was going to be incredibly close. Mm. And in order to... And here I think the standard political explanation does have merit. In order to solidify the Democratic Party, Kennedy needed someone that would appeal to the conservative wing. You know, back back then the Democratic Party still had one. Um, They needed somebody that could appeal to that wing of the party that would appear to be – a candidate on the ticket that would unite the Democratic Party and strengthen its position vis-a-vis Richard Nixon. Mm. And Johnson, of course, you know, former Senate Majority Leader, he had waged a campaign against uh, John Kennedy in 1960. So he's the logical choice. And if you look at the history of the of the two Kennedy brothers, Robert and, and John, they literally spent 
hours agonizing over the decision because they, on the one hand, they knew politically that they needed LBJ on the ticket. And on the other hand, of course, they knew that he didn't like them and they didn't like him. Mm. And the decision was finally made, of course, to run with, with LBJ. So I do think politics played a role. After the assassination, that American deep state steps very boldly onto the scene. And, mm. you know, Johnson's vice president, uh, Hubert Humphrey, may have been the last, you know, strong vice president that anybody ever picked. Because after that, of course, you had Nixon with Spiro Agnew, a, a complete non-entity. Mm. And then Carter with Mondale, in a certain sense, yet another non-entity. Uh, and then you had you had Ford and all of that. So, yeah, uh, the deep state hasn't really stepped boldly onto onto center stage yet. Um, it does this after the Kennedy assassination. I think that's part of the explanation. Yeah, but the Kennedys must have been underestimating to the length LBJ was willing to go. I think they knew enough to know that he was very corrupt. I don't think they knew, as you say, the full extent that he would be willing to go, except I do think that by the time you have the Bobby Baker scandal break out mm -hmm. in, in 1963, it's becoming increasingly clear as, as the Senate investigations continue that, that there is a connection directly to the vice president and that this is a scandal that could hurt hurt them. And both LBJ and the Kennedys knew that there was a strong possibility they would not keep him on the ticket for, for their second term. Yeah, so, the Kennedy would have no incentive to protect LBJ. In fact, I, no, think, I think as soon as they discovered this, yes. they must have planned to take him down together with the rest of the card house. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's quite true. Um, they they would have been casting about for someone else to run with them. Uh, and by that point, the other thing to remember is that uh, the Kennedys were in a fairly good position. They had they had a strong contender against them with Senator Goldwater, mm. but um, the they were in a good enough position vis-a-vis -vis the Democratic Party that they could afford to let LBJ go. Yeah, and uh, they must have, uh, after he took over, he must have uh, realized the real power structure. Uh, he must have been briefed about Bowman and all that uh, in the aftermath. You told us something interesting last time. You told that there was an Israeli attack on American battleships under LBJ. Yes, that was that was the USS Liberty incident. Yeah, that, that that kind of supports the perception that maybe the Israelis knew that LBJ was on board with the uh, Bormenreich. I don't know so much about that. Um, there, in fact, when you investigate that incident, there are suggestions that LBJ may have been in cahoots with the Israelis. False on, flag again, yeah. Yeah, a false flag. But again, that's an incident that I'm not all that familiar with. I do know that, that this did occur during uh, early on in the Johnson administration. And he his response to it always, I found, kind of strange. He wasn't really... Uh, he wasn't really very strong in, in his condemnation of that. And that has led some people to suspect and, and go out and investigate possible LBJ connections there. I'm, I, I don't know enough about it to conclude one way or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. A couple of more things before we wrap it up for today. Um, there's a 
weird conspiracy theory out there about Bush Senior uh, in his <laughs> younger days that he he was the assistant to Tesla of all things uh-huh. under the name uh, George I think sure. was, yeah and that he was <laughs> he was the model of the fairy tale about the man in the yellow hat and that the monkey you know that yeah yeah, yeah so I- you know about this conspiracy what do you make of that nothing I, I I don't. Uh, <laughs> I suspect I, I, I've had I've had so many people email me about that, and I just don't bother with it because I think it's so outlandish yeah. and so absurd. Uh, if if anything, what people need to look at in terms of of uh, George Herbert Walker Bush is number one, where was he on the day of the assassination? Mm. Okay, number one, because there is a call that is placed to the FBI by a George Bush indicating an, an attempt on, on the president's life. Mm. And when you dig even deeper into that story, you'll discover all sorts of waffling going on. But even more importantly, people need to look very carefully at something called Operation Zapata. Mm. Because th- there's every bit of evidence to suggest that George Bush Sr. was involved in the planning for what eventually became the Bay of Pigs. Mm. So that raises the stakes considerably about his own probably peripheral role on the assassination, but not so peripheral as not to raise some significant questions. Uh, That's the weird thing. We see, even on the ground, we see the shadow of so many of these power players. Uh, yes. CIA, the oil man, the Cubans. The Bobo man, uh, Galen, all these people somehow seem to be, and, and even LBJ, seem to be involved even at the most detailed level. Who, yes. you, you, you talked about this cancer research, you know, in, I think it was in regard to the Permindex Corporation. Yes. Uh, who were they uh, connected to again? Well, again, this is being done in New Orleans under the auspices of the Ochsner Cancer Foundation right. there in New Orleans by Dr. Alton Ochsner, who it is clear to me had some sort of CIA connections. Um, and Galen connections? I think at some point, perhaps peripherally, since he's involved with Juan Peron as a patient and doctor-patient relationship. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, raises the prospect that he's got some sort of knowledge about that whole Nazi enterprise. And the fact of the matter is, Dr. Oshner spoke German. He's from that part of South Dakota where you'll hear, you can go and hear German spoken. Um, there's lots of Germans in that part of South Dakota. Mm. So he, when Dr. Oshner had finished his medical degree, he actually toured Europe for quite some time mm. and made all sorts of contacts in Europe with his fluency in German. He, he spent a lot of time in Switzerland, a lot of time in Austria and Germany and so on. So he had contacts from, from before the war and who knows if any of those contacts have were maintained after the war. Yeah. I've, I've seen uh, speculations or, or allegations that uh, Oswald himself was spying on this covert network within the state and that he was loyal to Kennedy and that the reason they choose him as a patsy 
was that then the right-wing uh, borderland fascist faction within the American security state, you know, he would be the perfect pick. Let's yep. make the Patsy one of those uh, spies that are sniffing up all three. Yeah, they're 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 killing two birds with one stone. Yeah, picking him for the Patsy because they're eliminating someone that may have had information about this whole network. Yeah, he was connected to the Morgan Shields. Oswald was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so they've picked their Patsy very well. Mm. And let's not forget also something else that I mentioned in the book. Oswald himself apparently was heard by his Marine buddies not only speaking Russian but speaking German. Right. So why, again… Like the the Morgenshield, both of them spoke both languages. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Uh, And of course, when it comes to Nixon, we know that he… Like you said, he he had uh, an inside insight into everything that happened. Even though he wasn't central to it, he knew what had happened. And I've seen that uh, they say he he threatened to expose the Kennedy thing, and that's why they took him out. What do you think about that? Well, I don't know if if Nixon ever threatened to expose it, but... Because he blackmailed everyone and his mother. Well, if you go back to the Watergate tapes... He does make an allusion right. to what he calls, quote unquote, the whole Bay of Pigs thing, which his aide, H.R. Haldeman, in his memoirs, wrote was kind of Nixon's code for the, for the assassination. Now, yeah. Nixon, Nixon is a, yet another one of these guys that sells his soul to the deep state in order to, to attain power. There's an interesting film out that I want to mention for your listeners to, to watch. It's a film by Robert Altman. Mm. And it's a one-man – it's a film with basically just one actor. And this guy is playing Richard Nixon, dictating his memoirs. Mm-hmm. And the film is called Secret Honor. Mm. Uh, I played this film for an old college buddy of mine a couple of years ago who's who's kind of a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat and um, definitely not a fan of Richard Nixon. I played this film for him, and at the end of it, he just turned to me and he said, holy cow, that makes more sense than anything else I've ever heard wow. about that whole episode. Uh, I, I strongly urge your people I'll to check get it the, out immediately. Oh, yeah. Get that film and watch it because it, I have to warn people, the guy playing the guy playing Nixon at start, you, you have difficulty envisioning him as Nixon. But by the end of it, you're totally into the character because as he's dictating his memoirs, he's also getting inebriated. So the story comes out in, <laughs> in, in drips and, in, you know, a bit here and a bit Clever. there. By the end of the film, when the whole thing comes tumbling out, you realize that yet again, this whole thing has been yet another deep state thing. And that like Kennedy, unbelievably, Nixon was trying to fight his way out of it. And that's the part that, you know, stuns people and my friend included. And I have to point out that this film was based on a column by a Democratic syndicated columnist, by the way, at that time, mm. who was looking at the whole Watergate story, particularly as the House Impeachment Committee, the Rodino Committee, got underway. And she was looking at this, and she, she was looking at the Republican explanations and the Democratic explanations, and none of it was adding up to her. Right. So she came out with a column in which she proposed a theory that is so stunning <laughs> its mm. implications – 
And basically, this one-man play and the Altman film are based on her column, and her name was Renata Adler, A-D-L-E-R. And, of course, after this column, she was a relatively well-known columnist at that time. And, of course, after that column, her career just dropped like a rock. (laughs) Go figure. (laughs) Yeah, go figure. So, yeah, I I would recommend watching that film because it it ties Watergate and and all of this stuff back into the the same group of players. uh, Exactly. uh, It's it's a real stunner. That's all I can say. But we know Nixon... uh was private to knowing about uh, flying discs. Not every president has been briefed about or shown uh, these things, but Nixon was yes. one of them. Yes, yes. So he had leverage. Well, there's that famous claim of um, the American comedian Jackie Gleason, who was a close friend of, of Richard Nixon. For those of you in Europe who may not know who Jackie Gleason is, he was the principal actor in the 1950s American television series called The Honeymooners, all right? Mm. Uh, he appeared late in life in a movie with uh, Tom Hanks. But he's he was a well-known American entertainer figure at that time. He was a close friend of Richard Nixon. And Gleason maintained up to the end of his life, he was a big UFO nut, and maintained right up to the end of his life that Nixon actually took him to a base and, you know, showed him alien bodies and so on and so forth. So mm. this, again, Gleason was a fairly serious man, and, and for him to be saying things like that, uh, no it one wasn't, ever, It wasn't made as a joke, that's for sure. No, no, it wasn't made as a joke. Absolutely not. No, absolutely not. So uh, to round this off then, I want us, because last time I asked you to list the usual suspects, uh, the motives for killing Kennedy and and who could be involved. Mm -hmm. But let's end today by listing, uh, because in your book, and I must recommend it to you people, Joseph makes a very orderly uh, survey list of uh, different things like the murder itself, the framing os- of Oswald, the long-term cover-up, and you list like the different factions. So, so people get a very clear overview. But because nobody almost touches this except you, could we uh, list what's the different Nazi connections that we have? To in this in this whole thing, yeah, because we've gone through it. I mean, we can begin with that woman in Argentina who is familiar deeply with Bormann, and you you said she suspected that the Bormann Reich today has how many billion was it? Oh, her name was Dr. Tatiana Koryagina. She wasn't in Argentina; she was in Russia. In Russia, how much right. did she say they were good for? Oh. Uh, the Tatiana Koryagina, she said that this global network involved with 9-11 had assets in excess of $300 trillion. Jesus. I'm writing it down because when we get uh, Fitz on as a guest eventually, I'll, I'll confront her with a lot of numbers. $300 trillion mm-hmm. <laughs> is one of them. Oh, she's, well, Catherine has the numbers, let me tell yeah, you. Exactly. <laughs> So, but anyway, so what's the Nazi connections? Well, the to- Nazi the Nazi connections to all of this are are several, and they spin out in a number of directions. Number one, and the most obvious, is you have that connection between Alan Dulles and his crew at the CIA and General Galen's network. That's the first. One. The second one would be the connection between General Galen and the Texas oilman, and in particular, Clint Murkison, all right? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, now that connection was actually uncovered by Professor Peter Dale Scott. All oh, right. Oh, so in other oh. words, you know his research as well as I do, and it's, it's very, very solid and detailed. Oh yeah. Uh, so there's that connection. Mm -hmm. The third connection is, I think, with George de Morenschild via Lee Harvey Oswald, because he's the one introducing Oswald not only to the white Russian community, but to those Texas oil men. Mm -hmm. So de Morenschild, as I've argued, has more the hallmarks of someone working for Galen directly than for the CIA, which would be an indirect relationship because of that. So that's the third one. Mm -hmm. The fourth one is in New Orleans itself, where you have yet again not only a Nazi connection potentially through Dr. Alton Ochsner and his, his clinic there, because again, you have him going to South America. Juan Perón is one of his patients. Mm. But he's also involved in this mysterious cancer research with Dr. Mary Sherman and with David Ferry, another Oswald associate. And David Ferry clearly has fascist leanings. Mm. And I would also point out that there's a UFO connection in New Orleans with Guy Bannister, the guy that is, is in the office that Oswald is working out of, because Guy Bannister has, was the FBI field agent, special agent in Boise, Idaho, that was feeding in the in the 1940s, feeding all those UFO reports to the FBI, designated subject matter X. There's your X files, all right? So, <laughs> yeah. so you have a UFO connection there in, in New Orleans as well, mm -hmm. in addition to those fascist connections. Then you've got next, you've got the fascist indications symbolized by the two rifles that were claimed on the day of the assassination to have been used. The first one, if you go back and examine the first reports, those reports stated very clearly, and the Dallas Deputy Sheriff Roger Craig maintained up to the end, mysterious end of his life, that indeed this was a 7.65 Manlicker, or pardon me, 7.65 Mauser, which was a rifle that Mauser never made for the German army. It made them for the Argentine army. Mm. So you've got a German-Argentine connection there. Then you've got the 6.5 Manlicker Carcano, an Italian rifle. So you've got two of the Axis powers symbolized <laughs> there in the rifle. Mm. Uh, you've got, <coughs> pardon me. Oh, boy, I I'm missing one here. And I, uh, I Torbin document? Oh, the Torbett document, the Permindex, Murder Incorporated with all the connections to fascists, mm. Italian fascists. Hungry. Hang on. I joked and said Permindex sounds like a vaccine corporation. But what was there allegedly? I know it was a front office who didn't do much, but what was their alleged operations? Well, I think Permindex stands for Permanent Index. In other words, it's it's the corporate name itself tells you they're in the assassination for hire business. Ah, right, right. Like like okay. Blackwater. Like yeah, exactly. Right, it's right. it's an early Blackwater. Mm -hmm. That's what I think it is. Mm. Uh, so you've got that. Um, you've got the weird connection of Clay Shaw that Garrison indicts for the murder of Kennedy. Clay Shaw had been to Germany. He was a soldier in Germany during World War II. And there are indications in some circles that he may have been involved in some of the rat line operations. I've never been satisfied that mm. that the evidence there is all that compelling. Uh, so I didn't put that in the book. But I mentioned it, you know, just for mm. people that may be interested in it. 
So you've got a lot of the bottom line here is you've got a lot of uh, post loose Nazi ends. Yeah, 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 loose Nazi ends in the assassination that nobody really likes to talk about. Um, and there's one final big one, and that is when Lee Harvey Oswald was finally apprehended and then held by the Dallas police in his address book that was uncovered. He had the phone number for a fellow by the name of George Lincoln Rockwell. That's the neo-Nazi leader. That was the leader of the American Nazi Party at the time. Yeah. Well, I think it's just as big is that Jack Rubin says that the Nazis are coming to take over. Yeah, well, Jack Ruby, you know, the, the strange thing about Jack Ruby is that he made very clear statements after he assassinated Oswald on national television mm. that, uh, you know, a whole new government form of government was going to come into place and the assassination was bigger than anybody could possibly imagine and that this new form of government would basically be fascist. So it's a, he's actually saying it's a social engineering thing. Yeah, right there. That's exa- exactly, exactly, mm. exactly. Yeah. Okay, I think uh, we've covered as many bases as we can regarding that today. Uh, next time we go down this line, we'll probably go more into the space program and your UFO and uh, intelligence uh, mm-hmm. subject books, because you have a uh, two, three of those too that warrants its own show. <laughs> I think it's high time to take on that. Okay. So so let's do that. All right. Well, okay. Thanks, Thanks for talking. For talking. Yeah. 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 Ditto. 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 Yeah. Bye-bye. 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 So that's what we've got on JFK with Dr. Farrell to date. Next time we release a show with him in this series, it will regard NASA and the classified space program. In Kennedy's words, In a time of crisis, men of goodwill and generosity should be able to unite regardless of party or politics. Thanks for listening to Forum Borealis. Your host and pal has been Al, thanks to your support and the efforts of my team. Be seeing you. Number one.